Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Talk Recorded live. You are in danger. Protect your assets with gold and silver. Visit Discount Gold and Silver Trading at DGScoins.com. That's DGScoins.com or call 1-800-375-4188. That's 800-375-4188. Protect yourself and your family. Countries have denied Internet access for their people during civil strife. The FCC sees in-use commercial shortwave frequencies right after the September 11th attacks. No one communication system can be dependent on to be there when you need information. You need choices. You need a KU band free-to-air satellite system from ABR. The ABR system includes a receiver, an LNB, and a 75-centimeter dish. All you need to get on your own is the coaxial cable. The system is delivered to your door for $149.99. That's right, delivered for $149.99. That's the shipping and the system, $149.99. Call 541 541- Two two five four six five nine. That's five four one two two five four six five nine. Or visit AmericanVoiceRadio.com and click Satellite System. Studies have shown that the farm soil we get our vegetables from is dead, meaning it is depleted of minerals. Sulfur is a mineral. Sulfur has been depleted from the soil, which means most people have been depleted of sulfur. Sulfur has been found to transport oxygen throughout the body. You need oxygen. You need organic sulfur. American Voice Radio Network has organic sulfur. Go to AmericanVoiceRadio.com and then to the superstore to order your organic sulfur. It's your choice. Do you want to feel better or not? Don't forget to tune in to the Sulphur Hour Plus One on AmericanVoiceRadio.com, Thursdays, 6 p.m. Pacific.
All right, good evening all. This is the Frank Report. I'm your host, Francis Steffen. You're listening right here on American Voice Radio Network. It is about eight and a half minutes after 8 p.m. Pacific time. It's March 25th, 2015, and it is Wednesday night. Brett, we are live. You'll have to figure out where you're at and help you there. Figure out what time zone you're in. Live or not, and if we are, you can participate in the show. One place you can do that is theamericanvoice.com or americanvoiceradio.com. Once you go there, click the chat link. You'll see it. it says chat. All the easy instructions. You're in there, and you can participate. So you can ask questions. You can make comments. Or it all, and just chat with other folks that are in the chat room at the time. All right, so there you have it. You can also call in 855-566-3738, Participate in the show if you'd like. Uh, you don't have to participate in the chat room, though, you know. Chat. You can just talk about and see what everybody else is saying. Them. All right. Anyway, uh, as I said, it was Wednesday, and it is still. And that's so Monday evening. Called New World Order Info. Welcome, Melissa. Thank you. Hey, well, there you are. And uh, are you going to talk about your the schedule changes? Well, I wasn't going to, but now that you bring it up, uh, yes. Uh, starting Monday, okay. I don't know what date that would. Anyway, well, Monday. Um, Freedom Call, which has been seven AM Freedom Call, so uh you you won't get tired of replays anytime soon. Bible will be on. The evening show, which you're you're listening to right now, remains. There you have it. There it is. And uh, what do you have to talk about? Well... I've been having technical problems, <laughs> so. Um, well, you just leave that out of your introduction because <laughs> we all know that, all right? I mean, it's yeah, just, well, I just now got my computer up and 
going. So. It's a given, okay? <laughs> it is not. Every week, every show. And you never have any technical problems? Very seldom. <laughs> yes, you do. No, I don't. Very seldom do they affect the show. Anyway, yeah, so apparently... I don't have to come on and say I don't have anything to say because I've had technical problems. Why? I'll go with a different thing then. Um, there's an Oregon man who's charged with no crime. He's been in jail for 900 days. ACLU says no material witness has ever been held this long. He's a Mexican guy. Yeah. From a family of killers. And read that story. Okay. Um, March is a big month for marijuana. Five states are moving towards legalization. Five, huh? Five more? Are we including the three that already have? Uh, let's see. Apparently it's five more. It's oh, Maine, Massachusetts, Rhode Island, Connecticut, Vermont. Wow, okay. The north the northeast basically. Oh, darn, and this is not work. even decriminalization or medical marijuana. We're talking outright legalization. You know, and I personally honestly, I, I personally think that's a mistake for these activists in these states to uh, that, I think they should go first. Medical. And I think because it works so well here in Oregon. States that didn't do that mm-hmm. have had nothing but problems. Okay, they've had nothing but problems. It's like, okay, it's like telling people, all right, uh, you know, no drinking until you're 21 and that's it. We mean it. You're in big trouble if you try it. We, we're you know, and what, what what's the first thing every 21-year-old does when they turn 21? They go get hammered, right? Um, I think they usually do it when they're like a teenager, well, you know, sure. before they get to the But 21, they go to the bars and they get hammered. A lot of the times they get in trouble, and some of these kids uh, never recover from it. And I saw in Finland when I was there that they were selling beer out of soda machines on the street wanted a beer, you put in your coins, and you pulled out a beer, and you drank it. And there was nobody checking. It wasn't range. a big deal, in other words. Right, so because it wasn't illegal. It wasn't made a big deal out of by the kids. You know, and if you make something a big deal that they're not allowed to do, and we mean it, really, we mean it, and you say, well, until this day or this time, boy, when that day comes, they tend to get out of control. Because, you know, it's like filling up a balloon with water until it's about to pop, and then you go, okay, now you can let it go, and there they go, you know. So it, it's, I, I think it's just, I, I think you should have some transition time when, between anything. You know, anything that's been like, okay, forbidden, okay, we're deciding we're going to go this way. So let's, you know, it, it gives people a time to adjust, everybody. You know, because there is a group, you know, there's a whole percentage of people that are completely against it. They're never going to be for it. They're always going to believe that, you know, reefer madness is true. And they believe this because this is what they've been said. And then if you just jump in and say, okay, everything's legal now, well, you're going to see some of exactly what these people are afraid of. And they're going to say, see, I knew it. You just reinforced 
their false idea about how things are. But if you go slow, like here in Oregon, gosh, they had medical marijuana for many years. You know, there's been no problems to speak of in this state over it. Nobody, because everybody realizes, because the same people who said, oh, man, the sky is falling, you know, the world is going to end, it's going to be reefer madness, it's, oh, it's going to be crazy, said the exact same thing about medical marijuana, okay? They said the exact same thing, and it didn't happen. So, you know, I, I just think it's a smarter way to go, and I hope there's no problems, but Colorado and Washington have both had their problems over the, over the hasn't gone as smooth. Glad to see it. You know, myself, I'm glad to see it. I think, uh, you know, I think, honestly, you know, that, hey, make it all legal. Make everything legal. You want to kill yourself? You want to lay in a gutter as a junkie? You want to do whatever you want to do? Go do it. You know, go break the law after that. Like, you decide you want to go knock over a 7-Eleven? Well, you're going to get the yellow jumpsuit, and you're going to prison, whether you're a junkie or not. It doesn't hurt me for somebody to go out and take drugs. So I, I think it all ought to be legal. And and I know, I, I, I don't think it all should be taxed. I don't think this should be made a money-making scheme. Hmm. You know, exactly what it's turning these into. have all enacted the medical marijuana laws already. Well, then I'm, then I'm glad. And they have decriminalized small-time pot possession. Well, then I think they're doing They're all right. in New England, which is one of the most commie places yeah. in the country. So, um, yeah. Mm-hmm. So this is just about, you know, recreational use. Yeah, I, I think it's good. I, then, then it's good. I think they're doing it right. I think that was a responsible way to go, and it's the next natural. And also uh, next year. And what's going to be the tax? Do they mention the tax yeah, rates that are going to be in those? Well, places? not really. Um, Maine Rep. Diane Russell of Portland has previously sponsored legalization bills and is doing the same this year. While her bill has yet to be assigned to a committee in one chamber of the legislature is dominated by Republicans, the threat of legalization via voter initiative next year, if legislators don't act this year, could be enough to concentrate their minds. Then there's Massachusetts. Earlier this month, Rep. David Rogers, Democrat from Belmont, Senator Pat Jelen from Somerville, another Democrat, and 13 bipartisan co-sponsors introduced House Bill 1561, which would legalize marijuana for adults and establish a system of taxed and regulated marijuana commerce. As in Maine, legislators have the threat of a voter initiative next year if they fail to act. Rhode Island, earlier this month, Senate Health and Human Services Committee Chairman Joshua Miller, Democrat from Cranston House Finance Committee member Scott A. Slater, Democrat from Providence, introduced legislation to make marijuana legal for adults 21 and older and to establish a system in which Marijuana is regulated and taxed similarly to alcohol. Yeah. Like here, what, yeah. what they've done. Uh, the bills are House Bill 5777 and Senate Bill 510. The state has been tagged as one of the more likely ones to legalize it through the legislature. Then there's Connecticut, Rep. Edwin Vargas's HB 6473, and Rep. Juan Candelario's HB 
would each replace Connecticut's prohibition of marijuana with sensible regulation for adults to use in both are currently before the Joint Judiciary Committee. Well, the bottom line is uh, those states up there that are, uh, you know... Vermont's going to impose, according to this Senate Bill 95, if they do it, an ounce uh, is going to be taxed $40 for the tax. So that amounts to about a 40% tax. Yeah. You know, and the thing is, these states that are facing uh, voter initiatives, they better take that into consideration because Oregon failed. The Oregon legislature failed. Okay, they had the opportunity to do this, and they failed. So the voters came by and said, oh, yeah, guess what? What we were asking you to do, we're going to do more, and we're going to pass it, and you lose. So, you know, if you want to control what, what, you know, what the thing is, you know, what's going to be legal, how much is going to be legal, what it's going to be taxed, and all that, you better do it, or else the voters will do it for you. What happened in Oregon? We got a better bill. <laughs> I mean, we got a, we got a better bill by letting the voters do it than the legislature, because those dirtbags in Salem can't get anything right any more than the people in Washington District of Criminals can get anything right. They can't get anything right either. So, you know, the voters have a lot better chance of getting it right in the first place. I don't know, you know, to be impatient, yeah, I'd tell them to hurry up and, you know, get it done before the voters do. But on the other hand, the people would probably be better off if the voters wrote the bill. There's a lot of people that want it legalized um, in, you know, they have campaigns to do so already in Arizona, California, Michigan, Missouri, and Ohio, as well as Maine and Massachusetts, if the legislature's on it first. And then there's a lot of others. And that, yet they're still throwing kids in jail for uh, having a joint in yeah. Texas. Oh, yeah. yeah. Well, they've also filed marijuana legalization bills in many other states, like Arizona, District of Columbia, to tax and regulate, Georgia, Hawaii, Illinois, possession and cultivation, Maryland, Missouri, which would allow legalization, New Mexico uh, would approve a constitutional amendment, uh, then there's a straight legalization bill, which was already defeated there in New Mexico. Then there's Pennsylvania, Tennessee, possession and casual exchange, and Texas. So, you know, a lot of uh, bills well, out there. you know, it's going in that direction. Once they got three states to do it, other states smell money. Yeah, exactly. That's what I think the whole reason behind it all. You know, well, it's the reason why there's look. People have been trying to get marijuana legal. States have been resisting mm-hmm. really heavily, not just by voting against it, but also by throwing a lot of money behind camp. Oh my gosh, reaper madness, reaper madness! I tell you, uh, and and you know, there's the uneducated out there that believe that crap and. Uh, no doubt they want to synthesize it, you know, and make all kind of drugs. And well, well they want to stop it off of that. That'll be down the road a ways because. Well, the classification of it has held that back a lot, too. Well, sure, but the uh, pharmaceutical companies have always been prescription and all that. You know, they haven't been able to pass it out like they do Viagra. 
that's what they really want to do. You know, they they can do that, then they're going to be content. But you know, you take that stuff at your own risk because everything those people sell is poison. Exactly. Anyway. Oh, that's uh goes to show. I mean, a lot of people can say, "Well, this is terrible and this is bad." I I get that. On one way, it it does show the uh, moralization of America. So did uh, repealing prohibition and all that. But try and and in a way we do by saying, "Well, look, you can't." There's got to, you got to draw the line somewhere, though. Self would far much rather have every drug we know of and free to, for the taking without prescription, and that includes pharmaceutical poison. If you want to throw that stuff down your throat, you have at it, man. Go. I don't think, you know, why should the doctor, drug dealer, you know, you want to take that? Great. But make it all legal. I'd rather see that than homosexuals be promoted through public school and on television and everywhere else. Because I'll tell you what, that is a far more damaging activity than drug abuse ever will be. My opinion on it. So. Never heard of a pot smoker losing 20 years off their life, have you? Thanks. I've read a lot about how uh, it protects against lung disease, Alzheimer's, uh, head, throat, neck cancer, uh, lots of cancers, and then there's hemp oil, you know, that have that been shown to get rid of cancer, and just you know, glaucoma, and and so many other for pain and nausea and appetite for people that have no appetite, you know, when they're on chemotherapy or whatever, um, you know, or anorexic or whatever. So there's there's so many things, and I'm sure there's so many things out there that haven't even been discovered that are great health-wise. Well, sure. You know, I, now we have a question. I'm sure a lot of people wonder, but why, and, and this is coming from a professional truck driver, why do cops not sit outside bars and follow and harass those leaving the Yet they sit outside of industrial parks and harass truckers coming and going by doing DOT inspections. Well, the reason why cops don't do that outside of bars is because they're not allowed to. They tried to. <laughs> they used to do that. And then enough people sued them. Said, no, basically what you're doing amounts to wrong. And just going into a legal business, you didn't know I was drinking in there. I could have been having coke. I could have been playing darts. I could have used the bathroom. You don't know that I was drinking in there. And uh, so you're pulling me over and you don't have any probable cause. You don't have so any... So how far away are they, do they have to be now? Because, you know, they're just going to sit right down the road anyway. Well, they got to be far enough away. Although I don't believe in drinking and driving. Because they've been, look, they've been caught too many times. Mm-hmm. And they, every time, the, the courts have been consistent on this. Because they realize, well, look, wait a minute now. 
they get the envelopes from the uh, beer manufacturers and the bar owners uh-huh. and all this. You know, they get their little envelopes from that, and they've been told, look, man, build a business because that's what you'll do if you do this, if you allow this. And so, you know, there's a, it's not only your rights. It's also it's business, man. It's business, okay? And the thing about the DOT, that's a whole different deal. See, you are involved in a commercial activity. You are involved in commerce. This is your job. You are actually a driver, okay? And DOT is not the cops. They are a regulatory division specifically for you. So I'm not so sure the same rules apply. I don't think you have the same protections. I think when you got that uh, commercial driver license, you agreed to far more intrusive rules than uh, the average bear going down the road. I, I, I really do. And that's why I think they do it and they, they get away with it. It's because I because nobody, you know, comes by and says, Okay, man, you're gonna be a truck driver. <laughs> you know, this is what you're gonna do. Decide to do that job. And supposedly got that license, you read all the rules and realized, oh, okay, I see what this is. Like any rules, man, always got to look at them and figure if there is any room in the rules for them to abuse you, they're going to abuse you, all right? That's just the way they are, you know, especially now when times are tight. They got to have that money. DOT is partially funded by the fines they levy. Cops get to keep part of the money they seize from you in a, civil, in a simple civil forfeiture, it's hard to imagine that the DOT doesn't get to keep some of the fines they levy on truck drivers. So stands to reason the more fines they levy, the more money they make. All about business. Anyway. Genesis 129 says, And God said, Behold, I have given you every herb-bearing seed, which is upon the face of all the earth, and every tree in the which is the fruit of a tree yielding seed, to you it shall be for meat. Like I said, I don't care what people do. I don't care what what drugs people take. It doesn't hurt me for people to take drugs. Now, if you do something to hurt me, I really I don't care if you're loaded or not. You know, I mean, man, I've said this a thousand times. What what difference does it matter to me if you bash my head in with a tire iron, whether you're drunk or stoned or sober? It doesn't make any difference to me. My head's caved in. I don't care what your state of mind was. You know, I don't care. It doesn't make any difference to me. What about people that are on big pharma drugs that are all, you know, whatever, zoned out on no to driving? It doesn't you know? make any difference to me. I mean, nobody so seems to ever talk about that either. It's just, you know, marijuana and whatever else, well, alcohol yeah. and drugs. Although I, I believe you can still get a DUI even for prescription. Well, they're probably going to start 
given a lot of those, a lot more of those since there's so many in the population that own those. I mean, I'm amazed. I guess they're just not doing it for reasons of big pharma, and they've again, been told not to. Is one thing I can figure. Here's another example of what I don't care about. So you're on big pharma, or you just got whiskeyed up at the bar, or whatever. And uh, you know, I don't care if you go crashing your car into me and you're drunk as a skunk or stoned up on pharmaceuticals or screwing around with your stupid cell phone. You know, if if you, for some reason or another, were not paying attention like you should and you crash into me, all I care about is you crashed into me. You know, to me, I don't see any difference. I don't care for uh, what. I don't feel safe with drunk drivers out on the road. I don't feel safe with people on painkillers and, you know, downers. Really? Have, and you, blah, have blah, you looked blah. around as you're driving Whatever it and is. you see all the dimwit? Yeah, the cell phone, cell, cell phone, phone use, face. texting, I see that all the time. That's another huge yeah, thing, well, and that's causing that. a ton of accidents and deaths, too. So. And to me, these people, they don't give a damn. Because, I mean, that's like me going down the road. Okay, it's one thing. If I go to a bar and sneak a few drinks and try to sneak home in my car, it's another thing if I got a whiskey bottle in my seat and I'm tipping it up as I'm driving by other people on the highway. Yeah, look at me. <laughs> I'm drinking whiskey. Yeah, woohoo. I mean, that's what they're doing as they're yeah. talking on their cell phones as far as sure. I'm I think there's a huge, you know, part of the population doing exactly what you're talking about. I see it all the time. and. Yeah, me too. They, they don't take a thing of it, you know. I never, you know what? They can't I, put it down. I hardly ever see anybody tipping a bottle of whiskey going down the road. I really don't. But I see tons of people looking at their cell phones. And, and I can see you're looking at your cell phone. You're not looking at the road. And then they slow down. They speed up. They slow down. They speed up. They're a hazard. I see them with it right in the middle of their steering wheel held up high enough for me to see it. And then looking right at that while they're driving. You know, and they're texting or whatever, well, reading the text. you know, and the thing is, there's no there's no need for it because the devices out there are available. Plug it in, put it in your ear, put a microphone on. If you can't shut your mouth and, and just drive your car, you've got to be in contact with somebody all the time because you're such a needy psycho nutcase. A lot of people don't even want to talk. Up. They just want to text now. They don't want any other form of communication. Just text, you know. No, don't yeah. call me. Don't email me. I don't answer calls or emails. I only text. Sounds good. And then if they get caught doing it while they're driving, they should go to jail. Why? Anyway, we got to take a break, and uh, we'll play Stump the Room. We'll be back in a bit. Good luck. Come Johnny and Bobby too. Sing that. 
soil we get our vegetables from is dead, meaning it is depleted of minerals. Sulfur is a mineral. Sulfur has been depleted from the soil, which means most people have been depleted of sulfur. Sulfur has been found to transport oxygen throughout the body. You need oxygen. You need organic sulfur. American Voice Radio Network has organic sulfur. Go to AmericanVoiceRadio.com and then to the Superstore to order your organic sulfur. It's your choice. Do you want to feel better or not? Don't forget to tune in to the Sulfur Hour Plus One on AmericanVoiceRadio.com, Thursdays, 6 p.m. Pacific. internet access for their people during civil strife. The FCC sees in-use commercial shortwave frequencies right after the September 11th attacks. 
no one communication system can be depended on to be there when you need information. You need choices. You need a KU band free to air satellite system from ABR. The ABR system includes a receiver, an LMB, and a 75 centimeter dish. All you need to get on your own is the coaxial cable. The system is delivered to your door for $149.99. That's right, delivered for $149.99. That's the shipping and the system, $149.99. Call 541-225-4659. That's 541-225-4659. Or visit AmericanVoiceRadio.com and click the satellite system.
right, we're back. This is the Frank Report. I'm your host, Francis Steffen. You're listening right here on American Voice Radio Network. It is still March 25th, 2015. Still Wednesday. It's 8.44 out here on the Pacific Time Coast. So if all that's true, where you're at, that room at the American participate in the show or just chat with the other folks in there. Okay, so we're back. It's Wednesday night, and that means we've got Melissa Roxanne on as co-host. Welcome back, Melissa. Thank you. Oh, by the way, the room lost it once again. Yeah, 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 whatever. <laughs> anyway. a losing streak, haven't you? No, yeah, I we have not. Yeah, losing streak, actually. First song there was uh, and it was by uh, Ballard and the Midnighters. Then the second one Yeah, you know, folks, I, I encourage you, some of these, really, you just look up Professor Longhead. I'll be telling you more. Anyway, so I I guess it's your turn, or? I don't know, you were talking a lot, but you can go. Go ahead. Oh, really? Talking a lot? <laughs> Yeah, you can go. I'm just teasing. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, let's see. I've got a lot. Um, cops in Colorado could soon face $15,000 fines if they try to stop people from filming. Mm-hmm. So while Texas lawmakers are trying to make filming the police, police illegal, Colorado has a so-called better approach. Denver, Colorado... Uh, a package of bills that are designed to increase police oversight has been introduced in the Colorado legislature. One of the measures included in the package would impose up to $15,000 fines uh, and civil penalties for cops who interfere with someone trying to film them. And it says here, primarily it came up as a result of the number of news reports we've been seeing about police officers telling people, give me your camera or taking the data away, and that is unacceptable conduct, said Rep. Joe Salazar, a Democrat from Thornton and co-sponsor of the bill. Uh, according to 7 News Denver, Salazar said House Bill 15-1290 has support from both Democrats and Republicans and is not intended to penalize police. It takes a very special person to be a police officer, he said. We want to honor them, but at the special same time... As in, like, short bus special, where you got an um, IQ less than 90? And he says we have a few bad apples who need to be aware that their conduct now has major, major consequences. So, um, apparently, uh, one of the incidents that caught the attention of Salazar was the case of Bobby Ann Diaz, who was uh-huh. trying to film what happened after police shot and killed... 
17-year-old Jessica Hernandez, as Diaz was trying to film the incident, she says an officer stopped her and threatened her with arrest if she continued to film. At that time, the officers put Jesse down, and they were on their knees yelling that she better not record, she better not, Diaz said. She got scared. She got intimidated. These are big officers, and she didn't want to make things worse, but she didn't know that her filming was protected by law as long as she wasn't interfering with the investigation. She said, I wanted to cooperate with them, and I didn't know it was our right to keep recording on our property. Of course, this legislation was being met with opposition from police groups, and a spokesperson for the Colorado Association of Chiefs of Police Police said, while it recognizes citizens' right to record law enforcement, it is opposed to the fine of up to $15,000 because there is already a court process that determines whether an officer acted appropriately. Oh, is that right? Okay, well then, you know what? I agree. In that case, then we, we should get rid of all kinds of administrative yeah. everything and just everybody go to court. Like when you go to your bank and they have you say, oh, okay, you can open an account here, but you have to give up your right to a trial in a court setting and arbitration. Get rid of that, too, because, hey, we already have a court thing. And you know what else we can get rid of? We can get rid of car insurance. Because you know why? Hey, man, if you run into me and I think you should pay and you refuse, we've got the courts to go to, don't we? How come that argument doesn't work for that, but the cops want to say, oh, there's already the court. And what about all the laws on the books that they don't follow? You know, the borders are wide open, and on and on it goes. Well, the thing is, if it's good for one, it's good for all of them. Then fine. You want it? You want to get rid of that? That there's no law that we're, you know, oh, there's no fine for Then good. No more car insurance. No more Obamacare. No more none of this stuff that I'm required well, to do. Also, isn't it that you have, if you have enough money to pay, if you were to get into an accident, you know, you're not really required to have car insurance. Yeah, that's that's their little out on it, but it's so high that no, no, no. Oh, I, I mean, I figured it was high, but yeah. I don't know how high it was. Well, what what it's uh, what is it? Dollars uh, you have to put in a. Uh, okay. That you're not allowed to touch. Which the bank can then take from you, every penny of it, if they want no, to. you have in the bank, which you have to because you got to. And then there's the whole structuring thing that you've talked about and cancel of lines they've well, tried to charge him never, with. You can never get it out again. And they charged um, Elaine and, what was his name? Yeah, Ed and Elaine Brown with. Yeah, and then there was, uh, you know, this, this whole... It's apparent this existing process isn't enough to deter police from violating the rights of individuals. You know, last month there was a case of a man shopping at Walmart who saw police arresting a shoplifter when the man began filming. Uh, Chris Hoover started recording his altercation with police. He was arrested. And then in November, a man filmed Denver police as they beat a man and his pregnant wife. Officers took his tablet and deleted the video. However, they were too late as it had already been uploaded to Dropbox. So, you know, and we hear about this stuff all the time happening. And then they're supposed to wear cameras. And I read another article where, like I said, I think last week, places, some places where they've, 
been required to wear them, you know, oh, they malfunction, they haven't been wearing them, and stuff like that, so. So you go now. Unless you want me to go again. Oh, no. Oh, no. <laughs> so I was just looking through the chat room, and somebody claimed I wasn't paying attention because I didn't know those obscure bands, um, so I didn't even bother. No, but I, the Midnighters aren't bad. Never heard of them. But anyway. Chickadee. Um, yeah, so I'll look and see uh, if I see anything while you talk. But you've missed it many times in the past. I think it was the voices of women. In the absence of a federal requirement to label GMOs, food activists have taken putting the issue on the ballot in California, Washington, Colorado, and Oregon, of course. Big Food and his friends in the biotechnology haven't liked this one bit. They have spent over $80 million over the past several years to defeat banning anything. This is just saying, look, we want to know what this is in here. No, no, we can't do that. You also know that companies like Monsatan have launched an aggressive PR campaign to sell the public on this question. Beloved scientist his previous visit to Monsanto's headquarters and a nice Big bundle of money. Bill Nye is a whore. Bill Nye is a whore guy, okay? He'll take money to do anything. And we just, as we said before, the debate over GMOs is about their possible environmental and public health effects. It's about who controls the food. Today, Big Food's play for control became ever more clear when Representative Mike Pompeo a, rep, a Republican from Kansas introduced a safe and accurate food labeling act, which might as well be called the Denying Americans the Right to Know. This is this is what they do, folks. They first they try to stop you from doing garbage like Pompeo. Try to write something like the Patriot Act. You know, the Safe and Accurate Food Labeling Act. This is not Pompeo's first rise as a GMO rodeo. First introduced this bill in the last Congress. Apparently, the progress towards labeling GMOs sell GMOs or make processed food out of them. Association closed the remanufacturing. Decided to cut them off from the get go.
go by orchestrating federal legislation to block the states from getting into labeling games. In addition to preempting state-level GMO labeling efforts, the bill would also make it harder for the FDA to set up a federal labeling requirement and would basically uphold our current flawed system for GMO approvals, which uh, amounts to Monsanto says it's okay. Uh, they give the FDA a pile of money and some of the shills over there, job offers, and it gets approved. That's the system we're under now. And what about those voluntary non-GMO labels? Now, well, under the Dark Act, USDA would oversee those labels, and they'd most likely be weakened. Of course, this is all window dressing for the bill's primary intent, passing GMO labeling bills on the state level. We should be able to make informed choices about what we eat and our For all, we have nutritional labels that list ingredients. Over 90% of Americans support the labeling of GMOs. This is an impressive consensus. Right to know what bills like this that keep us in the dark. So this is what's going on, folks. This is what Monsanto is trying And not just them. Okay. They don't want you to know. I mean, what what is the big deal? What if, if it's so good, why are they hiding? So good. Want it labeled? I mean, this is great stuff, man. It's great stuff. It's GMO. Shouldn't the label say that all over it? If it's so good, don't you want people knowing it? That's why they make up other terms and names for ingredients that the public does know about, you know, like um, MSG and aspartame and Splenda. They they make up all these other words that people aren't familiar with to disguise what's in there. Yeah, and about 15 other things, probably. They tried to get renamed to corn sugar. Yeah, and, uh, you know, sorry, they that, they didn't even go for that. Blenda is also known as sucralose. Right. Most people don't recognize that. So, yeah, they, they do everything they can to hide it. Too. Oh, yeah. No, but that's the whole thing. They're like, well, you know... Uh, about uh, transparency and everything. Well, and what about business? Your product's so good, it's going to feed the poor and save the world mm-hmm. and all this other crap. So no, all the evidence says all other. Well, shouldn't you be proud of it? Shouldn't you want everybody to know, hey, this is that great GMO stuff you've been hearing about that's going to save the world and feed the poor. Look, it's on the label, GMO. I mean, isn't that what you would I, I mean, you know... But then again, people have. We've just been slammed because 90% consent. I think there's a 90% consent. But then again, it's not hard to believe this. Who really doesn't want to know what's in their food? Really, who's going to come and say no? I think a lot of people wouldn't want to know that they're eating people when they go to the hamburger joints and stuff like that, you know? Yeah, well, I don't think they're going to put 
about prescription drug dependency to stay healthy? Are you worried that the cost and availability of your medications may put your health at risk? Perhaps it's time you consider a natural, safe, and effective way to deal with your health problems. If only you knew where to start. Start right here. Tune in to Herb Talk Live with herbalist Wendy Wilson every Tuesday and Thursday evening, 7 p.m. on AmericanVoiceRadio.com, where your health care options just became endless. have denied internet access for their people during civil strife. The FCC seized in news commercial shortwave frequencies right after the September 11th attacks. No one communication system can be dependent on to be there when you need information. You need choices. You need a KU band free to air satellite system from ABR. The ABR system includes a receiver, an LMB, and a 75 centimeter dish. All you need to get on your own is the coaxial cable. The system is delivered to your door for $149.99. That's right, delivered for $149.99. That's the shipping and the system, $149.99. Call 541 541- Two two five four six five nine. That's five four one two two five four six five nine. Or visit AmericanVoiceRadio.com and click Satellite System. Studies have shown that the farm soil we get our vegetables from is dead, meaning it is depleted of minerals. Sulfur is a mineral. Sulfur has been depleted from the soil, which means most people have been depleted of sulfur. Sulfur has been found to transport oxygen throughout the body. You need oxygen. You need organic sulfur. American Voice Radio Network has organic sulfur. Go to AmericanVoiceRadio.com and then to the superstore to order your organic sulfur. It's your choice. Do you want to feel better or not? Don't forget to tune in to the Sulphur Hour Plus One on AmericanVoiceRadio.com, Thursdays, 6 p.m. Pacific.
prices have increased over 40%. Energy prices have increased over 20%. Wheat and gas prices have increased over 70%. What's going to be next? Do you see these trends reversing or even stabilizing? All fiat currencies have always failed and collapsed their economies on their way down. The Roman Empire, China, France, Argentina, Finland, Mexico, Russia, Zimbabwe all tried fiat currency and all collapsed into chaos. Meanwhile, the dollar has lost over 97% of its gold value since 1971, when an ounce of gold was valued at $35. If your assets are in paper, you are in danger. Protect your assets with gold and silver. Visit Discount Gold and Silver Trading at DGSCoins.com. That's DGSCoins.com or call 1-800-375-4188. That's 800-375-4188. Protect yourself and your family. November 29, 1901, the U.S. city of St. Louis saw the birth of the part-time venture for the production of saccharin. With just $1,500 plus $3,500 borrowed from Jacob Bauer, president of Chicago-based liquid carbonic acid manufacturing company, John F. Queenie formed Monsanto. Named after his wife, Olga Monsanto Queenie, this company was to eventually expand the globe to become a world leader in the manufacture of organochlorines and other synthetic compounds. In those early days, little or nothing was known about the toxic effects of chlorine chemistry. The innovative ideas and breakthroughs in new materials, and of course Monsanto's saccharin, were hailed as marvels of modern science. The outbreak of World War I brought new opportunities for the company. The chemical fuel was required in abundance by military surgeons to reduce the antiseptic, and Queenie used this demand to further his success. A major breakthrough came for the company in 1917 when Monsanto developed aspirin, a synthetic form of salicylic acid found naturally in willow trees. Then, in 1918, Monsanto expanded its operations across the Mississippi River buying out a company called Commercial Acid. This was their first stage of corporate growth. But the end of the First World War brought problems. The need for phenol had declined to such an extent that there were massive, hard-to-sell stockpiles. However, it was during this slump Queenie branched further afield. Sailing to Britain in search of bargain price redundant war factories, Queenie met Robert Gresser, the owner of Britain's leading phenol production plant in Kevin Lauer, North Wales. By 1920, he had purchased a half share in the company, then some years later bought out the remaining 50%, thus making Monsanto the first multinational chemical corporation. Standing on the banks of the Arvon Dudley, the River Dee, and surrounded by some of Britain's most majestic scenery, including the Grail Castle, seen as France, the Monsanto-owned plant remains to this day. During the 1990s, 
it was subject to the UK's largest multi-party lawsuit, which will be explained later. Despite the setback, Monsanto continued to grow, successfully selling products to a consumer ignorant of their effects. Exactly 50 years after John F. Queenie's part-time operation, Monsanto created an associate company in Japan, and in 1954, amalgamated with German-based Harbin Fabriken Bayer to form Mobay Chemicals. Further products and ventures included agrochemicals such as 245C, and 2,4-D, a new dishwasher detergent, and plutonium-238 for the American space program. If you write the book of love, you have faith in God above. If the Bible says 
overthrowing the fantastic alteration of sweet smelling synthetic gardens until the turning point in the 60s and the exchange of public awareness toward industrial chemicals. The publication of Rachel Carson's Silent Spring in 1962 rocked the industrial world. This was the first time that chemical philosophy had been questioned in such a public manner. Even more disturbing for them was the fact that Carson was already a respected scientist and author. Her book issued a global warning on the dangers of synthetic pesticides. Whilst the rest of the chemical industry recoiled into diplomatic silence, Monsanto instantly rebuked her claims. The then chairman of the board, Dr. Charles Allen Thomas, was quoted as saying, the airplane also involves risks as no one wants to eliminate aviation and pesticides involve a matter of trade-offs and their benefits far outweigh their perils. Carson's warnings were further substantiated in 1968 when 1,300 Japanese citizens fell ill after consuming rice oil contaminated with another Monsanto product, polychlorinated biphenols, PCB. The Swedish biologists had also found PCBs in the bodies of fish, and a different study confirmed the presence of this chemical in the U.S. environment. However, it wasn't until the mid-70s that the full sinister truth was realized. PCBs were persistent. The environment could not break them down, and even more disturbing was the fact that PCBs migrated through the air. Although Monsanto were forced to discontinue production shortly after these findings, they are still present in today's environment to the extent of being found in the body packs of almost all living creatures the world over. PCBs weren't their only problem. During the Vietnam War, the American government made use of Monsanto's 245T defoliant. Applying the codename Agent Orange, the U.S. forces utilized it to destroy the canopies of the Vietnamese jungle in an attempt to diminish the cover of their enemy. Just how devastating this procedure proved wasn't realized until some years later. Soldiers who had served in the war displayed horrendous health effects as a result of their exposure to Agent Orange. Agent Orange was contaminated with the most dangerous chemical ever created by mankind, dioxin. Dioxin is a toxic waste product of the chlorine chemical industry. As a result of the continued exposure to dioxin, Vietnamese children are still being born with horrendous deformities. Monsanto's legacy will live on for generations to come, for dioxin like PCBs is persistent in the environment.
p.m. November 21st, 1994, a local resident of Kevin Mower in North Wales telephones the Monsanto plant to complain about the smell of rotten eggs. When the call is answered, all that is heard in the background is a pandemonium of shouting and screaming staff. Frantically, factory staff try to contain the leak, but to no avail. Issuing from a breech pipe, hydrogen sulfide and carbon disulfide into the nighttime sky, forming a thick cloud of highly toxic gas. Midnight, November 21st, 1994. The toxic cloud moved beyond Monsanto's hike and regarded security fence. Under advice from the emergency services, they are told to sound their emergency siren. Realizing the devastating potential of a major chemical leak, my partner Janet and myself make a rush for our safety documents. Every household in Kevin Mauer has one. It says that in the event of a major incident, we should close all windows, vents, and doors. Panic-stricken, we endeavor the section. Our telephone rings. It's our neighbor. Can you hear the siren? She screams. The gas is in my house. I feel dizzy. I don't know what to do. We told her we were evacuating. Our house is full of it, too. It's hydrogen sulfide, highly toxic and it could ignite any moment. I open the front door. The air is full with the stench of rotten eggs. We rush to the car, Janet clutching Jamie, our two-year-old son. I feel the gas enter my lungs. Its vile taste makes me heave. Running, I glance toward the factory. Clouds of vaporous gases billow from their sulfur recovery unit. The sky wasn't the sky anymore. It was a mass of toxic fume falling onto my village. With the rising and falling sirens still pulsating in our ears, we speed away to safety. All is still on the mountain above the village. The relief to be away from the chaos is overpowering. Amidst the blue flashing lights of the emergency vehicles, the cloud of toxic gas moves slowly through the streets below. 
peeping under doors and through unclosable vents. In the distance, racing towards the local town, an ambulance bears the victims of an accident they told us was virtually non-existent. 3.15 a.m., November 22, 1994. The single tone of Monsanto's all-clear siren rings relievingly throughout the nighttime sky. Monsanto. For 20 years I've traveled the globe, and everywhere I've heard about this American multinational. But what I've heard hasn't always been positive. Wanting to know more, I've surfed the web for months to put the pieces of the puzzle together. On its website, Monsanto positions itself as an agricultural company that aims to help farmers produce healthier food while reducing agriculture's impact on our environment. Its leading product is Roundup, the world's best-selling herbicide for the last 30 years. Monsanto is also the world leader in biotechnology. 90% of the GMOs grown on the planet belong to them. Most of them have been genetically modified to resist the application of Roundup, like Roundup-ready soybeans. Monsanto's GMOs have invaded the planet, but no ag industry product in history has ever incited as much controversy and passion. Why? What's at stake with GMOs? And could the company's past shed some light on what the company is or claims to be today? Founded in St. Louis, Missouri in 1901, it was not always an agricultural company. It was one of the largest chemical companies of the 20th century. Chemistry is working for you, and very likely Monsanto is working for you. Monsanto, where creative chemistry works wonders for you. The wonders boasted about in this commercial made Monsanto one of the most controversial companies in the industrial era. Agent Orange, Aspartame, Bovine Growth Hormone, PCBs. These chemically created oils used worldwide as coolants and lubricants in electrical equipment were the jewels in Monsanto's crown for over 50 years. They were called Araflor in the United States, Pirvelin in France, and Clofen in Germany until they were banned in the early 1980s. Monsanto PCB. A Washington Post article from 2002. Monsanto hid decades of pollution. It happened in Anniston, Alabama. Here is my baby brother. Uh, 
He died in 1971 uh, from a cancer of the brain, a tumor of the brain, cancer of the lungs and hers of the heart. He was 16. In the last three years, I have lost more friends. They died from illnesses, cancer, um, sugar diabetes, hepatitis, all these different ailments that come with PCBs and they have been related to PCBs. This is all just a black area of uh, minorities that live in this area, but every one of these homes was, like, contaminated. They just cleaned that yard up over there to the right about six months ago. These was all homes. These people lived here. And they now, they had to move. They, I mean, the houses were torn down. My brother fell dead right around the house. This is the house I was raised in. See this grass right here? They bury PCBs over here. Monsanto got permission to bury PCBs in Anniston. And uh, this is no Creek. Right here, where they put the cement in here. He comes from the plant discharging PCBs all the way down through here. And it was poisoning. Uh, they never told anybody. But they told the state. The state didn't tell them. PCB Monsanto News. But what exactly did they know? An environmental organization in Washington, D.C., headed by Ken Cooks, has put internal Monsanto files online. Most of them are classified confidential. FYI and destroy. Nineteen thirty seven, exposure to PCBs provokes systemic toxic effects and acne forms skin eruption. In nineteen sixty one, Two workers developed hepatitis symptoms after a pipe broke in a factory using PCBs. In 1966, Monsanto scientists placed fish in Snow Creek's water. All were dead in three and a half minutes. Pollution, a letter addressed to sales executives in 1970. This is the one that really tells you the story. They're saying, we can't afford to lose one dollar of business. Their neighbors in Anniston were not told about the, the poisoning that they were inflicting upon them because they didn't want to lose one dollar. It was only when lawyers went to court on behalf of people in Anniston and forced the company through the legal system to disclose these internal secret documents that we knew what they knew. They knew the truth from the very beginning. They lied about it. They hid the truth from their neighbors. They hid the truth, in many cases, from the government authorities. And when they did share information with government authorities that should have been acted upon, the government authorities, instead of siding with the people who were being poisoned, sided with the company. They sided with Monsanto. It was outrageous, absolutely unforgivable. Oh, these are all you members? Yeah. yeah. Well, no, they ain't all of them. I got some more here. <laughs> How much do you have in you? 
63.8 in the blood. In the blood. If they took a fatty biopsy of him now, he probably would top the scales of about three or 4,000 parts per billion or more. Yeah, which is a level acceptable, I mean... Acceptable is two, point, uh, two parts per billion. That's the standard all around the world. But these people, we have more in our blood than in our body than actually anywhere else in the world. Uh, it's usual here to speak about his PCB level. We all talk about it because it became a household word now. Kids used to run up to me, Mr. Baker, I I got tested. I had three point part per billion in my blood. Uh, how, how long do you think I got? But that's a horrible story. But what do scientists think about it? On the web, you can find numerous articles concerning the effects of PCBs on human health. David Carpenter is one of the most qualified specialists in the field. He carried out the testing for the Aniston residents. We all have PCBs in our bodies. The polar bears and the penguins have PCBs. And what has happened is in the past, there were a few sites where PCBs were released. But over time, they've gone into the air, they've gone into the water, they've transported, so the whole world is now contaminated with PCBs. The issue is that many diseases are caused by PCB exposure. The one everyone knows about is cancer. Women that get pregnant and have PCBs in their body will have a child with a reduced IQ. 29.6. PCBs cause reduced thyroid function. Oh, 1,800. PCBs interfere with sex hormones. Pass away. Monsanto's unwavering claim 
that it is biodegradable and good for the environment. Voici Rooftop, le premier désherbant biodégradable. Il détruit les mauvaises herbes de l'intérieur jusqu'au racines et il ne pollue ni la terre ni l'eau souterraine. Rooftop, le désherbant qui donne envie de s'arrêter. Roundup biodegradable. Ken Cook was right. The company was found guilty of false advertising twice. The first time was in New York in 1996, and the second was in France just last year. The judges found that the wording biodegradable leaves the soil clean and respects the environment for false advertising, especially since, according to tests performed by Monsanto itself, only 2% of the product had broken down after 28 days. That's why Monsanto recently removed the word biodegradable from its containers. But that's not all. Many scientific studies have shown that Roundup is highly toxic. For example, Roundup provokes cell division dysfunction, a study by Professor Robert Bellay. Professor Bellet works for the National Center for Scientific Research and the Pierre and Marie Curie Institute in France. He has studied the effects of Roundup on fertilized sea urchin eggs. The big surprise was that Roundup has an effect on cell division. We saw very quickly that Roundup affected a key process in cell division. Not the cell division mechanisms themselves, but those which control cell division. You have to understand how cells become cancerous. In the beginning, all cells are benign, and then at a certain point, modifications take place in the cells that make them unstable from a genetic point of view. This is the first malfunction that we observed with Roundup. It is for that reason that we consider that Roundup provokes the first stages that lead to cancer. We're careful not to say it provokes cancer, because we won't see the cancers develop for 30 or 40 years. It was immediately clear how important these findings were for product users, especially since the tested doses were well below those which people normally use. And we said to ourselves, gosh, we really have to let the public know about the dangers as quickly as we can. And I thought the best way to do that was to talk to my administration. But there, I was shocked, and very, very shocked, because I was told, ordered, rather, not to communicate our findings due to the GMO question lurking in the background. What an incredible account. Roundup's toxicity was hidden to protect the development of GMOs. So let's go back to the creation of GMOs. According to Monsanto's site, Roundup Ready soybeans, introduced in 1996, were the first bioengineered crop to be approved in the United States. Farmers using these seeds belong to the American Soybean Association, whose address is on Monsanto's site. John Hoffman is its vice president and an ardent biotechnology advocate. In the spring, I will go out and, and spray one pass of Roundup to burn down the weeds that are growing in the early spring. And about uh, six or seven weeks later, I'll spray a second pass of Roundup. And that controls the weeds for the year. 
before we had Roundup technology, this field would have had weeds. We would have had to walk through and pull the excess weeds by hand. It was labor intensive. So the Roundup Ready system saves me time and it saves me money. It seems Monsanto's new wonder has what it takes to entice farmers. But how does it work? How can the soybean plants survive being sprayed with Roundup? This is a soybean cell. The core of this cell contains its DNA in which the bean's genetic structure is encoded. In order to create its GMOs, Monsanto breaks the species barrier using a Roundup-resistant gene harvested from a bacterium. This gene is placed on microscopic particles of gold, which are fired into the soybean cells with the gene gun. The gene penetrates the DNA and creates a protein, making the plant resistant to Roundup. When the herbicide is sprayed on the crop, it kills all the weeds, leaving the soybean plants intact. One must admit that the process is an incredible technological feat. But these soybeans engineered to withstand such a powerful herbicide are destined for our dinner plates. They must have been thoroughly tested before being put on the market. Who was the Secretary of Agriculture at the time? Dan Glickman, Bill Clinton's Ag Secretary from 1995 to 2000. What I found in the early years I was involved in the regula regulation of biotechnology that there was a general feeling in agribusiness and inside our government in the U.S. that if you weren't marching lockstep forward in favor of rapid approvals of biotech products, rapid approvals of GMO crops, then somehow you were anti-science and, and anti-progress. Well, I think that, frankly, there were a lot of folks in industrial agriculture who didn't want as much analysis as probably we should have had because they had made a huge amount of investments in the product. I mean, I think that, and, and certainly when I became secretary, given the fact that I was in charge of the department and regulating agriculture, I had a lot of pressure on me not to push the issue too far, so to speak. But I, I would say even when I opened my mouth in the Clinton administration, I got slapped around a little bit by not only the industry, but also some of the people even in the administration. In fact, I made a speech once uh, where uh, saying that we needed to be more, we needed to more thoughtfully think through the regulatory issues on GMOs. And I had some people within the Clinton administration, particularly on, in the U.S. trade area, they were very upset with me. They said, how could you in agriculture be questioning our regulatory regime? In a nutshell, in the United States, the Secretary of Agriculture doesn't stand a chance against the multinationals. But just how are GMOs regulated in the United States? The most crucial policy on the subject was published by the FDA, the Food and Drug Administration, which is legally responsible for regulating the safety of food and medicine. Title, Foods Derived from New Plant Varieties. Date, May 29, 1992. Principle 1, 
Foods derived from genetic modification are regulated within the existing framework that applied to foods developed by traditional plant breeding. Obviously, the FDA decided not to create a special category for GMOs. For further information, contact James Mariansky, who headed the biotechnology department at the time. Basically, the government had taken a decision that it would not create new laws, that it felt there were already sufficient laws in place that had enough authority for the agencies to deal with new technologies. That means the White House asked the agency to write a policy where GMOs should not be submitted to a specific regulatory regime, but it's not based on scientific data. It's a political decision? Yes, it was a political decision. It was a very broad decision that didn't apply to just foods. It applied to all products of biotechnology. Unbelievable. James Mariansky admits the GMO regulation was based on politics rather than science. How exactly did they justify their decision? Principle two, the components of food as a result of genetic modification of a plant will be the same as or substantially similar to substances commonly found in food. In other words, the FDA considers that a genetically modified plant is equivalent to its conventional counterpart. What they call the principle of substantial equivalence has been adopted around the world, and it's at the heart of the debate between biotech supporters and GMO foes. How could the FDA decide that a GMO crop is the same as a conventional plant? What we do know is that the genes that are being introduced currently to date using biotechnology produce proteins that are very similar to proteins that we've consumed for many centuries. That's the FDA's official position on the matter, which was toppled by Jeffrey Smith, author of several books on GMOs. Michael Hansen, scientific expert for the Consumers Union of the United States. And writer Jeremy Rifkin, who was the first to denounce the principle of substantial equivalence. The reason why GM crops are here it's based on the deception that occurred in the FDA. They said that these foods are not different. They used the word substantially equivalent. They used the word not meaningfully or uniformly different. And what that turned into was a, a terminology called generally recognized as safe or grass. Typically, if something is to be considered generally recognized as safe, it needs lots of peer-reviewed published studies and an overwhelming consensus among the scientific community. With GM crops, they had neither. What FDA was saying was if you introduce a gene into a plant, that gene is DNA, and we've consumed DNA. We have a long history of consuming DNA, and we, we can establish that that is grass. We were trying to say that these things should be considered food additives. When you want to put a new coloring agent in a food, the tiniest bit of coloring agent or uh, a preservative or some other tiny chemical, that's considered a food additive, and you have to go through all these procedures to show it's uh, that it meets the criterion of reasonable certainty of no harm, but when you genetically engineer a food which can cause untold differences in that plant, they don't require anything. 
here in Washington, if you if you were to have an evening and go out and get a drink uh, at one of the local haunts where all the lobbyists hang out, uh, everybody would laugh about this. They all know this is a joke. This substantial equivalency. This was simply a way to paper over uh, the need for these companies, especially Monsanto, to move their products into the environment quickly with the least amount of government interference. And I should say uh, they were uh, very, very good at getting their uh, interest uh, expressed. I remember meetings that we had where the Monsanto scientists uh, met with the FDA scientists and they went through the kinds of modifications that they were making and how those were being done. And basically what they were also saying to FDA is, how will these products be regulated? I have never seen a situation where one company could have so much overwhelming influence at the highest levels of regulatory decision-making as the example of Monsanto with its GM food policy in the government. Exceptional news footage actually shows George Bush Sr. visiting Monsanto's research facility nine years before Roundup Ready soybeans were first sold. What I'd like to uh, do today is show you some of the steps we go through when we're moving genes from uh, one organism to another. And you'll actually be doing the, the very little manipulations we do in the laboratory where we take DNA, cut it apart, mix different pieces together, and then rejoin right. them and splice them back together. This tube contains DNA that was made from a bacterium. The DNA would look the same whether it was from a uh, plant what are we saying? This will lead you to do what? To have a stronger plant or a plant that resists the herbicide? In this case, it resists the herbicide. We have a fabulous herbicide. When George Bush Sr. toured the company's headquarters, he was Ronald Reagan's vice president, and deregulation was this Republican administration's watchword. The intention was to boost industry by eliminating what White House hardliners called bureaucratic hurdles, like health and environmental safety testing, which were Monsanto's key problems. We have before USDA right now a request to test this for the first time on a farm in an old one here. And uh, we're hallucinating about it.
Do you think it's because of the conspiracy? A conspiracy is a strong word. From a corporate standpoint, it was a brilliantly executed takeover. Early on, uh, a gentleman by the name of Michael Taylor became the deputy uh, administrator of the Food and Drug Administration right at the time that they were about to set out their policy. Who is Michael Taylor? On the Internet, only a single image remains of the man who once wielded his power so discreetly. Today he has a foundation called Resources for the Future. Hello, Mary Monique speaking. Hello, it's Mike Taylor. My questions are about your your role. I mean, when you uh, were working at the FDA, yeah. um, before hi being hired by the FDA, you worked as an attorney from Monsanto during seven years, didn't you? Well, I was a partner in a law firm of which Monsanto was a client. And uh -huh. I worked on some Monsanto matters, yes. Uh -huh. And apparently, if I understood well what I read, and the FDA created a new position for you, Deputy Commissioner for Policy? Well, because it's a special need at that time uh, at the FDA because of the new GMOs? Uh, it, had, it had nothing to do with GMOs. Ah. Nothing at all to do with GMOs. I wasn't the author of these policies, but that, that, that very, that's his fault. He moved over to the FDA in July of 1991. Up until that time, he was at a law firm called King & Spaulding. His personal clients included not only Monsanto, but the International Food Biotechnology Council. And he had drafted for them a proposal for how they would like to see genetically engineered foods regulated. And if you look at the proposal that was written for IFBC that was Michael Taylor's with the final one that was published, it looks very, very similar. So he, if he didn't write it, it looks like somebody took what he wrote and changed it slightly for the policy. Mr. Taylor was the um, deputy commissioner at the time, and he provided the leadership um, for the project and served as the, the chief um, the sort of the lead policy person in terms of uh, making sure that the project got done. So Monsanto played that game very well, both the political game and the uh, regulatory game. They played a key role in bovine growth hormone in getting that thing approved and also in how genetic engineering was dealt with. Michael Hansen has just mentioned bovine growth hormone. What's that? It's a transgenic hormone that's injected into cows, increasing dairy production by 20%. It would be an understatement to say that it had critics. The hormone threatens our health. Deadly poison. Manipulation. Called RBGH for recombinant bovine growth hormone. Monsanto began selling it to dairy farmers in 1994 under the brand name Posilac. Posilac is the single most tested new product in history. You'll soon see the dramatic results Posilac can offer you.
1985, Monsanto submitted Pozolac to the FDA for market approval. The experts at the FDA's Center for Veterinary Medicine reviewed the studies that the company had carried out on experimental herds. At the FDA, the veterinarian in charge of reviewing the data was Richard Burroughs. In an interview, he stated that agency officials had suppressed and manipulated data. The data that they came in with lacked a lot of insight into the dairy industry. They didn't ask crucial questions about these diseases, and that is mastitis, which is infection of the mammary glands, and reproductive problems. So when the first data came in and that was missing, I said, um, all right, guys, you need to go back and get information. So that set it back probably two or three years. Did you warn the FDA about your concerns? They pretty much just sidetracked me. They pulled in, my boss pulled in other people that were closer to him, and I saw less and less of the data. Even the things I had asked for to be done, I didn't like the mastitis studies. I never really got to see a lot of that because they figured, well, if you're in the way, we'll get you out of the way. So they sidetracked me. Eventually, I was fired. One day, I was escorted to the door and told that was it. I was, I was done. Have you been threatened? Yes. Um, mainly by the lawyers for Monsanto, because when I was going for my appeal, they told my lawyer that if I went in and revealed any company secrets in my defense, that they would sue me. In the end, the FDA was forced to reinstate this conscientious veterinarian. He eventually resigned, disheartened. On the Internet, there's also talk about files that were stolen from the FDA and sent to Dr. Samuel Epstein, who heads the Cancer Prevention Coalition. In 1990, Samuel Epstein published an article in the Milkweed, the standard for dairy reporting, edited by Pete Hardin. The scoop was based on the secret documents that the two men scrutinized. One morning, uh, I came, I think in October of that year, I came into my office and found a great big box of documents. And um, the, it came from Washington, but no indication as to who sent it. This was a box of files of all Monsanto records which had been submitted to the FDA on the veterinary test in the preceding six years or so. Well, this was great fun. Many of these documents are original documents, uh, and as it says here, company confidential. It can, contains confidential information which not be, may not be reproduced, revealed to unauthorized persons, or sent outside the company without proper authorization. As an investigative journalist, that's the kind of stuff I like to report. Revealing this information made Monsanto and FDA very, very angry because what we were able to establish is that there were dramatic physiological changes in the animals that received the shot, the hormone shots, compared to their control group peers. For example, we see the ovaries of the 
cow is receiving the synthetic hormone in the different treatment groups were, for the right ovaries, 34% larger, 42% larger, and 44% larger. Elsewhere in the stolen files, it shows how there were severe problems with the reproduction of these treated animals. Data is conclusive. We provided the data, the raw data, uh, and summary data. Peer-reviewed data is not done by us to support the submission. Every health authority who has looked at the Vinsomatosopan has found that it is completely safe for consumers. For Monsanto, the hormone is not only safe, it is actually beneficial for consumers. Because the chemical composition of the milk is not altered as a result of Pozolac, the manufacturing and taste properties do not change. I'm true or lie, whatever the adjective you want to use. And it's a very different product. It's a very, very different product in many, many ways. First of all, um, as there's a high incidence of mastitis in the cows, there'd be pus in the milk. And then you'd find antibiotics typically given to the cows to treat the mastitis. So a wide range of antibiotics would be in the milk. Apart from that, and very, very importantly, very substantial increases in levels of IGF-1, or insulin-like growth factor 1. There have been a series of studies, somewhere in the region of 60, relating the increased levels of IGF-1 and breast, colon, and prostate cancers. Absolutely incredible. Are there other countries that have approved RBGH? Apparently, the hormone was banned in Europe and Canada. Canada? That's strange because Health Canada usually models its decisions on the FDA's. RBGH, scandal at Health Canada. Monsanto accused of attempt to bribe Health Canada for RBGH. In October 1998, Three scientists from Health Canada testified before a Senate commission in order to stop the approval of the transgenic hormone. The scandal was made public by whistleblower Dr. Shiv Chopra. The truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. So help me God. My question to myself was, what truth am I going to tell the one I know or the what the minister is telling me to tell? And that was my uh, conflict. I would ask each one of you, have everyone, any one of you been uh, lobbied by Monsanto? Any one of you? Dr. Hayden. I did attend a meeting uh, back uh, approximately about 1989 90, uh, and Monsanto representatives had met with uh, myself and my uh, supervisor, Dr. Brennan, and my director, Dr. Mancier, and at that meeting, uh, an offer of one to two million dollars was made uh, by the company, and uh, I don't know uh, any more about what became of that, but uh, my director indicated after the meeting that he was going to report it to his uh, superiors. How did Monsanto react? Well, Monsanto did not deny that they made the offer of one to two million dollars at this meeting. They later on tried to say, oh, this was an offer of research in Canada uh, to uh, do some more studies in cows in Canada or whatever.
what happened in Canada, the drug was not approved. So the European Parliament, based on what revelations in Canada, banned it forever. And then all of a sudden, we three, Margaret Hayden, Gerard Lambert, and I were dismissed for disobedience. And all three of us were fired, and those fights are now in court. The United States Congress also opened an investigation at the request of RBGH opponents who opposed the ban on labeling milk as RBGH-free. Interestingly enough, the investigation was never completed. Congress should create a mandatory 
notification system that ensures that every product is looked at by FDA and that FDA makes a safety judgment about every product. That's some very compelling testimony. It seems that Michael Taylor has qualms about the policy he signed in 1992. What about the FDA's own scientists? Was there a consensus on the GMO regulations? FDA documents show they ignored GMO safety warnings from their own scientists, written by Steve Drucker. Lawyer Stephen Drucker represents a coalition of nonprofit associations. He sued the FDA, forcing it to declassify its internal files on GMOs. We received over 44,000 pages from the FDA's own files, and they revealed that the FDA has been lying to the world since 1992, if not before. But they continue to lie. They are still lying. They claim that there is an overwhelming consensus in the scientific community that genetically engineered foods are as safe as their conventionally produced counterparts, and they claim that there has been sufficient data to back up this consensus. Both of those claims are blatant lies. There are several examples. For instance, Dr. Louis Preble of the FDA's microbiology group wrote, quote, there is a profound difference between the types of unexpected effects from traditional breeding and genetic engineering, unquote. Then Dr. Preble added in his memo that some of the effects of genetic engineering may be more hazardous. The concern expressed by the FDA's various scientific experts was so clear and unmistakable that the FDA official whose job it was to track and summarize the scientist's input, Dr. Linda Call, wrote a memo to the FDA biotechnology coordinator, Dr. James Mariansky. According to the internal FDA site, which has been declassified now, uh, there were many in-house critics, I mean, among the scientists of the FDA, uh, about the uh, proposed policy. I have, for instance, a memorandum sent to you by Linda Carl. She stated, the processes of genetic engineering and traditional breeding are different. Traditional breeding are different, and according to the technical experts in the agency, they lead to different risks. Different risks. The point was that we had many people with many different views. Uh, Linda Call, of course, that wrote that in her memo, but in fact, when we finished the policy, all the scientists agreed with the policy. Now, FDA, of course, looked at the use of genetic engineering and has no information that simply the use of the technique creates products that differ in safety or quality. Even before the consistent warnings in the memos from the FDA's own scientists, the FDA had very clear warnings because the very first genetically engineered food supplement that came to market in the United States caused a major epidemic. Do you remember what happened in 
more than 1,000 people disabled. Do you remember? I do. And you said, according to FDA, an intuitive record, we do not yet know the cause of EMS, nor can we rule out the engineering of the organism. Did you say that? That I read? Yes. Amazing. James Mariansky can't rule out the possibility that it's the genetic manipulation itself that triggers unexpected side effects. But he did nothing. Have any independent scientists investigated this question, which is crucial for consumers? Arpad Pustai, world-renowned scientist, lost his job when he warned about GE Foods, 1998. Arpad Pustai worked for the Rowett Institute in Scotland. At the Ministry of Agriculture's request, he led a study on genetically modified potatoes with a budget of over 2 million euros and a staff of 30 researchers to prepare the arrival of GMOs in Great Britain. We were all enthusiastic about it. I was enthusiastic about it. The Ministry thought that if we did this study, looking at all aspects, uh, then it would be an endorsement of GM. And when they introduced it, they would say that uh, the foremost laboratory in uh, Europe, um, uh, nutritional laboratory, had uh, looked at them and they found them all right. Arpaid Pustai specializes in lectins. These proteins function as an insecticide protecting plants against aphids. Rowett scientists had created potatoes that were resistant to aphids and into which they introduced a snowdrop gene, which produces the lectin in question. Beforehand, they verified that in their naturally occurring state, lectins themselves do not pose a health risk. The genetically modified potatoes were tested on rats. It had a twofold effects. First, it started to uh, increase a, a proliferative response in the gut, and that you don't like um, because uh, this is uh, possibly, uh, I'm not saying that it is cancerous, but what it uh, does, it, it does, uh, it can have an adjuvant effect on, on any chemical, uh, uh, chemically induced tumor. The other thing is the immune system was suddenly in, in, got into high gear, and that was, uh, we don't know whether it's good or bad, or but it certainly did recognize the GM potatoes as, as alien. And we were convinced that uh, this insertion is causing the problem and not the trunk gene. As I said, the trunk gene, when we uh, did it in isolation, even at 800-fold concentration didn't do any harm. It was a very important point because the American FDA uh, uh, it's going on by uh, about a neutral technology. And what we did say and what we did publish was uh, actually corroborated, confirmed that it was not the, uh, the trunk gene which was the problem, but it was the technology. While the first shipments of genetically modified soybeans were arriving in Great Britain, Arpad Pustai's superiors authorized him to be interviewed by the BBC. As a scientist actively working on the field, uh, I find that uh, it's 
very, very unfair to use uh, our fellow citizens as guinea uh, pigs. They will never forgive me for that. Monsanto did see the importance of, it, of our findings. Don't worry about it. Even before uh, the, the broadcast went out, uh, they, they already knew because the Scottish Crop Research Institute did get a lot of money from Monsanto, and they were not uh, slow to understand the implications. The day after the interview's broadcast, Arpad Pusai was fired and the research team dismantled. Dr. Stanley Ewan was in charge of evaluating the impact of GM potatoes on the rat's internal organs. He no longer has any illusions about scientific independence. I was extremely, well, angry and very, very concerned. I just, it's like your whole world is disappearing under your feet. What's going on? They start to discredit Stanley as well. It's not just Arpad. Stanley was made to retire and he was discredited at the university as well.
After 10 years on the market, Roundup Ready soybeans account for 90% of all the soybeans grown in the U.S. In fact, 70% of the food in American stores contains bioengineered elements. Unlike Europe, consumers cannot make an informed decision because GM labeling is forbidden, a direct consequence of the principle of substantial equivalence. You know, I've got a soybean in my hand here, and I can eat this soybean. It's very safe, very safe. I think the FDA is confident that the soybean, in terms of food safety, is as safe as other varieties of soybean. How is the FDA confident about that? It's based on all the data that, that the company provided to FDA that was reviewed by FDA scientists. And so it's, it's, it's not in the company's interest to try to design a study in some way that would mask results. How can James Mariansky be so sure? If I type in Monsanto falsified scientific study, I get 174,000 hits. Among them, a report from the EPA of the United States. Monsanto accused of falsifying studies concerning the carcinogenicity of dioxins. The story began in nitro in a Monsanto factory that produced a powerful herbicide called 245 c In 1949, an explosion in the factory provoked unexpected side effects. 228 workers developed an extremely disfiguring illness called chloracne. It's caused by dioxin, which is a highly toxic byproduct of 245 c C was the main ingredient in Agent Orange, the defoliant used by the U.S. Army during the Vietnam War. During the war, 40 million liters of Agent Orange, containing 400 kilograms of pure dioxin, were sprayed on trees in southern Vietnam. Three million people were contaminated, including thousands of American soldiers. Even some 40 years after the end of the war, dioxin continues to claim more victims. We know today that this poison provokes cancer and serious genetic malfunctions. In 1978, while American Vietnam veterans were suing the makers of Agent Orange, Monsanto sponsored studies on the long-term effects of dioxin. The company paid scientists to compare the health of workers who had been exposed during the nitro plant accident 30 years prior to the health of non-exposed workers. There are two experts on the subject. William Sanjur, who led the Toxic Waste Division of the Environmental Protection Agency, and Gerson Smoger, a lawyer who represents Vietnam veterans. In 1990, uh, Dr. Kate Jenkins, uh, a colleague of mine at EPA, wrote a memorandum pointing out that allegations had been made 
that those studies, uh, some of those studies that Monsanto had conducted were flawed, and if they were done correctly, would have reached just the opposite results that Monsanto had. The Monsanto studies showed that dioxin was not a human carcinogen. That means they had the data first, and then they manipulated how they were going to look at that data to come up with the conclusion they want. It's absolutely, you never do a study that way, never. And they did it absolutely wrong, they, and they achieved what they wanted. And it was, came out later that there were people that had cancer that in one of the two studies were listed as being exposed to dioxin, and the same five people in another study were listed as not being exposed. When you put all these cancers into the unexposed, then it looked like the unexposed people were getting as much cancer as the exposed, and they said, look, there's no difference. See, they're the same. So then thousands and thousands of veterans were, were disallowed benefits uh, because of exposure to Agent Orange. So all policy was affected by those studies for seven to nine years in this country. Being a good scientist and a good EPA employee, uh, and someone, by the way, who's quite fearless, Kate Jenkins wrote a memorandum to the EPA Science Advisory Board asking them to review these two studies to see if they were correctly done. The fact is, there was no investigation of Monsanto. It didn't exist. Nobody investigated those, uh, those uh, studies. Nobody, period. What they investigated was Kate Jenkins, the whistleblower. They made her life a hell. They harassed her. They changed her job. They persecuted the poor woman. If you think of Monsanto today, they're telling that their GMOs, for instance, are sound and safe. Do you trust I wouldn't the company? I would that company said nothing. I might trust some independent source who investigated their claims, uh -huh. depending on who that independent source was and how good they are and how independent they are. Precisely. In order to prove the safety of Roundup Ready soybean, Monsanto carried out a study which was published in 1996 in a well-respected scientific journal. The study was supposed to assess the effects of GM soybeans on animal health, specifically on rats. This study was thoroughly reviewed by both a Danish scientist, now deceased, and the Norwegian specialist, Ian Prime. I'm afraid to say value uh, this study very poorly indeed. Very disappointing, very disappointing. Um, especially because this paper sort of served as a basis for the whole um, uh, principle of, of, of uh, substantial equivalence. I can just cite, which is going to be surprising, although the animal feeding studies provide some reassurance that no major changes occurred. Now, some reassurance, not good enough. I want 100% reassurance, not just some, some reassurance. They talk, for example, about the... Um, page 723, except for the darker brown color, livers appeared normal at necropsy. I mean, you, you, you can't do that without looking inside. You, you have to look at the content inside the liver, taking sections, showing in the microscope that there is no, no difference. They've used, for example, older, older rats. Well, obviously, again, if you want to avoid any problems, you can use adults. But uh, if you want to, to see if... if uh, any changes are evident, and you should use younger individuals. Well, 
some ways you could say it's bad science because um, a lot of the data that they should have shown isn't shown. Did you try, for instance, to get access to the raw data? I didn't. A colleague of mine did and spent quite a frustrating length of time going through different uh, offices and, and, and so on. But finally, the answer was uh, the, the answer was no. If there was nothing to hide, then there should be no problem. You should be willing to, to distribute your, your material for anybody to do work on. And when it's when you, when you keep it keep it tight, then you suspect that there's why why is this the case? One thing is sure. Thanks to this limited study, Monsanto's GMOs have inundated the world, principally in North and South America, Asia, and Australia. After only 10 years, transgenic crops now cover 250 million acres. 70% are Roundup resistant, and 30% have been genetically modified to produce an insecticide called BT. Since 2001, the company has published a yearly document titled The Pledge Report, a kind of ethics statement in which Monsanto tries to justify its business practices. At the heart of the opposition to GMOs is the subject of patents. This is what Monsanto calls their intellectual property, which are supposed to protect their investment. In North America, every farmer who buys bioengineered seeds must sign a technology agreement in which the farmer promises to respect the company's patent on the modified genes. Biotech crops are protected by U.S. patent law. And so I may not in any way save seed to uh, replant uh, the following year. It's uh, something that uh, is a protection for, the, for Monsanto, for biotech companies, because they literally invest millions and millions of dollars uh, to produce this new technology. And how can Monsanto know that someone, for instance, replant harvested seeds? I'm not sure how to, how to answer that. No, how they would how they would know if someone replanted seed. That's a good question for Monsanto. <laughs> the question is so touchy that Monsanto prefers to circumvent it by making glorious promises. In cases of unintended appearance of our proprietary varieties on a farmer's field, we will surely work to resolve the matter to the satisfaction of both the farmer and Monsanto. The reality seems much less idyllic. The Center for Food Safety in Washington, D.C. published a study on farmers sued by Monsanto for having not respected its seed patents. It found at least 100 lawsuits and many bankruptcies. Among the victims, Troy Rush, an Indiana farmer. Our story starts back in 1999. A gentleman, and I use that term loosely, uh, showed up at my mother and father's farm 
and uh, he claimed to be uh, a private investigator hired by Monsanto, and uh, he was uh, out investigating uh, farmers saving their own seed, uh, and uh, asked this guy, uh, come right out and ask us if we had saved their seed, and uh, we told him no, we had not, and uh, offered up our herbicide purchases and seed purchases. Uh, all the receipts and everything, um, told him where everything was purchased so he could go check it out for himself. Um, he, uh, he declined that, uh, that offer. And um, what occurred is then they, they sued us. Monsanto filed a lawsuit against myself, uh, my father, and my two brothers. And uh, Monsanto presented us with uh, documents that they claimed were uh, samples taken from our farm. To obtain those samples, Monsanto had to have trespassed upon our land without a permission and sold those samples. That year, I recall, we had uh, 492 acres of Roundup Ready soybeans, um, and they were, they were growing under contract for a company for seed. Um, and the contract was very specific. It spelled out the specific fields. So it wasn't a problem in isolating those fields. Um, everybody knew it. And why did you settle out of court with Monsanto? Well, after two and a half years of this, uh, the family was just just destroyed. Um, uh, the stress involved in this, I mean, they're in essence threatening five generations of work. And um, if they were to prevail in something like this, it's all gone. They take it all away. They take it all away. Good morning. Good morning, sir. How are you doing, Troy? Well, how are you, David? Still surviving? Good. <laughs> Troy Roush and David Runyon grow conventional soybeans. They have been victims of the so-called gene police. Created by Monsanto to enforce its law in the field, the gene police so fear in rural America, where farmers denounce the totalitarian methods used in a GMO-dominated world. I have some pictures here for you, Troy, left you to look at. Okay. Here's what I have done, Troy, to uh, help prevent re-entry on my farm. Anyone coming on my farm? <laughs> Summer, it was in July of 2003, and they came, it was the latter part of July, they came to my house, it was uh, like 7 p.m., okay. uh, Monsanto employees, and they presented me a uh, business card, and uh, they asked me a few questions about the kind of soybeans I plant, the kind of corn I plant, uh, where I market my crops, and so I said, okay, that's the end of the conversation. Yeah, patents have changed, changed everything. It revolves with the, with, with the relationship of trust with neighbors. That is gone. Uh, by myself, I probably don't have two farmers that I talk to that are close to me. As everybody is afraid to farmers. Of course they're afraid. You can't defend yourself against these people. They've created a little industry that, that serves no other purpose than to wreck farmers' lives. Um, of course they're afraid. Or is it that you're afraid that the neighbor can snitch on you? Yes. Yes? Yes. All you have to do is dial 1-800. Dial 1-800 Monsanto. Or no, I'm sorry, 1-800 Ground Dust. I remember encouraging farmers to uh, call this, this toll-free number and turn their neighbor in. And why does Monsanto do that? Well, the reason they do it is control. Seeds? Yeah. They want to control the seeds. They want to own life. I mean, this is the building block of food we're talking about. They, they are in.
in the process of owning food. All food. 1995 and 2005, Monsanto acquired over 50 seed companies throughout the world. These companies produce corn, cotton, wheat, and soybean, and also seeds for tomatoes, potatoes, and sorghum. Everywhere, people worry about Monsanto's monopoly, which in the long term threatens to wipe out all non-transgenic varieties. Monsanto doesn't agree and speaks only about the benefits of biotechnology, especially in developing countries like India. Our products provide significant economic benefits to both large and small growers. In many cases, farmers are able to grow higher quality and better yielding crops. largest cotton producer. In 1999, Monsanto acquired Mahico, the country's leading seed company. Two years later, the Indian government authorized the sale of BT cotton under the brand name Balgard. It is genetically modified to produce an insecticide which repels ballworms, a cotton parasite. <laughs> Since 2001, Kiran and Abdul Gayam have been closely following the transgenic cotton grown by small farmers in the Warangal district. Every year, the two agronomists publish a report comparing bioengineered cotton with conventional cotton in terms of yields and production costs. In 2006, the harvest was ravaged by a disease that affects transgenic cotton. This is a bulgard uh, field. Uh, and we can see some of the rhizoctonia affected plants. You see. If you remove the bark of a healthy plant, it, will, it won't be like this, like a thread. See, it's a classic example of rhizoctonia infestation. And uh, when we were doing our study from 2001, we are noted this disease on very few branches in the beauty cotton only. And as the time passed, the spread was seen more and more in the beauty fields as well as some non-beauty fields also. But I personally feel that there might be some interaction, undesirable interaction between the host plant where the gene was introduced and the gene which is carrying the beauty. And that has introduced the weakness in the plant to not to resist this rhizoctonia. I have seen the website of the uh, Michael Monsanto. BT cotton reduces 78% of pesticide reduction um, in pesticide convention, and it gives to 30% better yield. But it, it's an utter flop. After 70, 90 days, you have to spray for uh, a bollworm, even on the BT cotton. How do you think that so many farmers are? Buying BT seeds. Presently, the option is very, very narrow, getting narrower and narrower to the farmer. During the current season, even farmer wanted to go for non-BT. There was no non-BT herbal seed available in the market. Today in India, 
Monsanto controls nearly all of the cottonseed market, forcing the locals to buy its seeds at prices four times higher than conventional varieties. Small farmers must turn to moneylenders, who charge high interest rates. If the harvest is poor, it means bankruptcy, a vicious circle which is decimating Indian villages. Tragedies like the one we've just witnessed occur three times a day in the Vidharba region, where BT cotton was introduced in 2005. Of course, cotton farmers committing suicide is not new in India, but the GM crops are causing it to skyrocket. However, in this battle that pits David against Goliath, few dare to publicly denounce this international scandal. This is Vidarbha's rice growing bed. So if you see the minimum suicides are there. But this is the cotton growing area. The result of the British cotton is the first year 600 suicides from June 2005 to June 2006. Second year, still today, within six months, 680 suicides.
the title of a book by physicist Vandana Shiva. She won the Alternative Nobel Prize and heads the Navdana organization, which aims to conserve traditional seeds. In the beginning, Vandana Shiva's battle was against the first Green Revolution, which brought industrial agriculture to India in the 1960s. Today, she denounces what she calls the second Green Revolution, that of GMOs protected by patents. The difference is that the first Green Revolution was public sector driven. It was driven by government agencies. The government agencies controlled the research. In the case of the second Green Revolution, it is driven by Monsanto. It is a Monsanto-driven revolution. The second big difference is that the first Green Revolution did have a hidden objective of selling more chemicals. But its first objective was providing food. It was food security. And yes, they grew less pulses, they grew less oysters, but they did grow more rice and wheat, it fed people. Second Green Revolution has nothing to do with food security. It's not about food security. It is about returns to Monsanto's profits. That's all it is about. They've always said genetic engineering is the way to get to patenting, but patenting is the real thing. If you look at Monsanto's research agenda, they are testing at this point something like 20 crops with BT genes in them. There's nothing they're leaving untouched, the mustard, the okra, the brinjals, the rice, um, the cauliflower. Once they have established the norm that seed can be owned as their property, royalties can be collected, we will depend on them for every seed we grow, of every crop we grow. If they control seed, they control food, they know it, it's strategic, it's more powerful than bombs, it's more powerful than guns. This is the best way to control the population of the world. Monsanto responds to Ms. Shiva's persuasive arguments by brandishing its pledge, integrity, dialogue, transparency, and sharing. We want to participate constructively in the process by which societies around the world try to develop good answers to those questions. Are the products going to be safe for the environment? How are they going to affect biodiversity? How are they going to affect other plants and insects and birds. What about outcrossing of genes? What happens if, if genes do outcross into wild species? To me, that means, among other things, listening carefully and respectfully to all points of view. Despite Robert Shapiro's placid demeanor, he has just touched on a subject that greatly troubles GMO opponents, transgenic contamination which Monsanto prefers to call an adventitious presence that's part of the natural order. According to a study led by Berkeley professor, Dr. Ignacio Chapella, GMOs have already contaminated Mexican corn. But when the scientific journal Nature published the study's findings, it triggered a violent controversy. working for 15 years with indigenous communities in Oaxaca, in Mexico, 
and they had been developing the capacity to analyze their environment themselves. One of my students went to try and train people to detect transgenics. We brought with ourselves a positive control. It was a can of corn from the U.S. that we knew was transgenic. And we were looking for a negative control. And we thought the best negative control is going to be corn from the local places. Because we all believe that was the cleanest, the most um, uh, well-preserved source of corn in the world. So the surprise came when we looked at these samples and we discovered that the samples that we all believed would be non-transgenic had already transgenic DNA within them. It was a very big surprise for us to discover that this, these uh, land races of corn that were kept by people locally and supposedly maintained over 10,000 years had already been reached by transgenic contamination, mostly from the U.S. Mexico is the center of origin for corn. More than 150 local corn varieties can be found in just the southern region of Oaxaca. This extensive biodiversity is a treasure, the world's genetic reservoir of corn. Millions of Mexican farmers have maintained it for thousands of years. It's amazing. It's only for the family. Yeah. Only for the family. We use it to make tortillas. This year is a good size, so we'll save it as seeds for next year's planting. You don't buy your seeds? No. No. You exchange them? Yes. It's our ancient barter system. To preserve its corn's diversity, Mexico has banned genetically modified crops. However, due to the NAFTA free trade agreement it signed with the United States and Canada, Mexico cannot stop the massive importation of American corn, 40% of which is genetically modified. This industrial corn, as it's called in Mexico, is highly subsidized by the U.S. government. So on local markets, it costs half as much as traditional Mexican corn. Do you always make your tortillas with local corn? Yes. It's natural and has a better yield. Also, it's more nourishing because it comes from pure soil. That's blue corn. In the past, my ancestors only planted this kind of corn. Today, we maintain it as well. It's existed before the Spanish conquest. Yes. There's another kind of conquest. What's the new conquest? It's the transgenic conquest that wants to destroy everything by making local corn disappear so that their industrial corn can dominate. If they succeed, we'll be dependent on multinationals. We'll be forced to buy the fertilizer and insecticides they sell because without them, their corn won't grow. Whereas the local corn grows very well without fertilizer or herbicide. Look at it. It's very beautiful. 
Ignacio Chapella's article provoked a violent reaction in Mexico. Since then, the National Ecology Institute has confirmed the contamination of Mexican corn. Roundup Ready and BT genes have been found in corn from five regions of the country. What would happen if bioengineered corn crossed with traditional land races? Dr. Albera Buya led a study using a local flower. She inserted the same gene in several specimens and then observed their growth. We observed that two plants, strictly identical from a genetic point of view, in other words, they both have the same genome, the same chromosomes and the same transgene. The only difference is that the transgene is located in different places. And well, once they grew, these plants presented a phenotype. That is to say, flower shapes that were very different. Some have flowers that are identical to their natural counterparts, like here, four petals with four sepals. But others have abnormal flowers with abnormal hair or strange petals. In addition, some are completely monstrous. The only difference in all of these plants is the location of the transgene, which was inserted randomly. Why is that worrisome? In Mexico, once the transgenic corn seeds have been released into the environment, it's very likely that the transgenes will insert themselves into the genomes of the local Mexican varieties. It's an unavoidable phenomenon, because corn plants cross naturally by wind-blown pollen. Given that, we fear that the genetic resources of traditional corn will be uncontrollably affected. Good morning. We invite you to attend a meeting about the new diseases which are infecting our corn because of transgenic contamination. Aldo heads an organization of indigenous people. For two years, he's been leading an information campaign in Oaxaca communities, where Elena Alvarez's fears have already been confirmed in the field. I'm going to show you some photos of some corn plants that we took in our region of Sierra Juarez. We'd like to know if you have already seen this type of plant in your community. You can see that some very strange things are going on. This plant, for example, has a branch here and another one there. Normally, a corn plant is not like that. There is always only one ear per leaf. But look here. There are three ears coming out of the same leaf. They are really monsters. We send a plant sample to a biotech lab to see if maybe it contained genetically modified genes. Unfortunately, the test came out positive. Usually, we see these types of plants along the roadside or in people's yards. 
Porque es posible que la gente compre corn en la shops y they drop some kernels while walking. Some kernels germinate. This is how traditional corn became contaminated. From what you said, if we don't manage to stop their spread in our fields, Soon we'll be forced to buy our corn seed because our own won't work anymore. That's very troubling. What should we do? First of all, if you find a strange plant, you should immediately remove its stamen because that's where the pollen comes from. In any case, you must be very vigilant in monitoring your plants. But don't you think it's Monsanto's strategy, what they couldn't achieve legally, they are trying to force through contamination? Yes, we end up wondering if the contamination wasn't intentional. If the center of origin of corn becomes contaminated, the rest of the planet could follow. Contamination only benefits multinationals like Monsanto. How did Monsanto react to Ignatia Capella's study on Mexican corn contamination? Monsanto's Dirty Tricks campaign against fired Berkeley professor Ignacio Capella, an article by Jonathan Matthews, who heads GM Watch, a GMO information service based in southern England. According to Jonathan Matthews, Ignacio Capella was a victim of a campaign launched on AgBioWorld, a pro-GMO internet site. On the eve of the article's publication in Nature, a certain Mary Murphy posted an email that AgBioWorld distributed to thousands of scientists around the world. She wrote, activists will certainly run wild with news that Mexican corn has been contaminated by genes from GM corn. The very next day, a certain Andorra Smetacek posted a second email. Activist first, scientist second. It's totally a smear campaign. And this is what happens over the first couple of days. You get Murphy and Smetacek coming in, then others come in, and they say, we have to campaign on this. We have to inundate nature. We have to go to the editor of the journal, and we have to say this research isn't valid. Smetacek and Murphy, we, we've been tracking them for some time and trying to work out who they were. In the case of Smetacek, we can look at the technical headers on the email. It says received from, and then we've got an internet protocol address. If we go off to a website registration site, now all we have to do is just to copy that IP address. Organization name, Monsanto Company, and based in St. Louis. Then Mary Murphy left behind um, details that um, enabled us to, to track who she was. So if, if we look, look here at the information that appeared, posted by Mary Murphy, and then we get the IP address, bw6.bivwood.com. 
when we found that that was the original name of a PR agency called the Bivings Group, we quickly found out that on their client list was Monsanto, that this was an internet PR firm for Monsanto. Fake scientists. What is dirty tricks? Yeah, no, no, we're talking very dirty tricks here. Yeah, I mean, there, there, there's no ethics at all in, in, in what's going on here. It shows that an organization that is determined to push its products into countries around the world, and it's determined to destroy the reputation of anybody who stands in their way. Jonathan Matthews' accusations were covered in the British press but Monsanto chose to ignore them. As it continues its unrelenting rise, the company defends its vision of a transgenic world that will resolve the problems of famine and the environment in perfect harmony. Practical experience clearly demonstrates that the coexistence of biotech, conventional, and organic systems is not only possible, but is peacefully occurring around the world. A transgenic world already exists in South America, where 100 million acres of Roundup Ready soybeans were planted in 2007. Their conquest started 10 years ago in Argentina, the only country to have officially authorized transgenic crops. Since then, GMOs have mysteriously spread to neighboring countries, like Brazil and Paraguay seen here. In 2005, Paraguay finally legalized these smuggled crops to save their soybean exports to Europe, where labeling GMOs is obligatory. In reality, for the Ministry of Agriculture, the deed had already been done. We had to authorize GMO seeds because they had already entered our country in a, let's say, unorthodox way. Do you know how transgenic seeds enter the country? Through the black market or smuggling? We don't speak we don't speak about the black market, but about the blank sack, because these are the seed sacks that have no official markings. Did Monsanto play a role in this seed contraband? It is possible that the company, let's say, promoted its varieties and its seeds, and as I told you, the government had to react after the fact to authorize what was already a reality. Whatever the origin, contraband has been profitable for Monsanto. As soon as the crops were legalized, the company obtained the right to collect royalties on each ton of soybeans the country produced. Just like in Brazil. Since then, there has been no let-up in Paraguay's deforestation and the expulsion of many small farmers who refuse to relinquish their small plots of land. Jorge Galliano leads a small farmers organization which is fighting against the progression of what he calls the Green Desert. What we have here is an example of a GM extension of soybeans. In fact, it's a monocrop that destroys everything in its path. Before here, there were fields containing everything that a family needed to live. Plants, trees, 
Do you think that the GM crop can coexist with the crops of the small farmers? No, we are sure it can't. There are two incompatible models that can't coexist. It's a silent war that eliminates communities and families of small farmers. In addition, it destroys the biodiversity of the countryside. It brings death, poverty, and illness, as well as the destruction of the natural resources that help us live. Today, Roundup is sprayed all over Paraguay by plane or mechanical spreaders driven by unprotected farm workers. The herbicide is sprayed right up to people's front doors or near the subsistence crops of small farmers. Every year, crops are destroyed and thousands of people contaminated. Like this family, which is surrounded by Monsanto's GMOs. The parents are worried about their son Pedro because every day he has to cross the soybean field to sell his mother's homemade corn tortillas. How long has he had that? It started 15 days ago. It started on his foot and then it spread. That's how it starts. Does he have a headache? Is he eating? Very little. Today he didn't want to eat what I prepared for him. He only drank a little fruit juice. And his brother? He's better, but it's difficult. That's the way we live. Recently, we lost 60 ducks and geese. They took a few steps and then they fell down, dead as doornails. They spray deadly herbicide over there. When it rains, the water streams down here, and since ducks live in water, that's the result. In Paraguay, 70% of the farmland is owned by only 2% of the population. With GMOs, the concentration is increasing. Three-quarters of the soybean producers are foreigners staking claims for this new green gold. The ban on animal-based feed after the mad cow epidemic and the recent biofuel craze have caused soy prices to soar, triggering a rush to round up ready crops. According to the last census in Paraguay, each year 100,000 people leave rural areas to live in urban slums. An estimated 70% flee Monsanto's genetically modified soybeans, which are destined to feed Europe's chickens, cows, and pigs. We are going to talk about the production model of GM soybeans promoted by Monsanto. It's a true multinational company. It's everywhere in the world. Its objective is to control all of the world's food production through farmerless farming.
The result is that Monsanto is depriving us of our food sovereignty, of our ability to feed ourselves, without depending on anyone else. That is why we say that we must fight for our independence, for our land. We must defend our communities, our families, and our country. In my case, my family lives in a city, but I don't want to go there. In the city, you have to buy everything, even food. Here, whatever we grow is ours. We can eat whatever we want, but in the city, you can't. If you don't have money, you have to search for food in garbage cans. I'd like to add that these families' struggle to survive touches all of us. In 2007, Monsanto employed 18,000 workers in 50 countries. In 2007, its stock prices continue to rise, and its profits have reached a billion dollars. Its shareholders include not only pension funds and banks, but also hundreds of thousands of small investors. Uh, hello, Christopher Hona. Uh, my name is Robert Yeah, we appreciate your persistence in, uh, in asking, but, uh, you know, we've had several conversations internally about this and uh, have not changed our position, so there's no reason for us to participate. Our suspicion is that it would not be positive. Um, so, you know. Prices have increased over 40%. Energy prices have increased over 20%. Wheat and gas prices have increased over 70%. What's going to be next? Do you see these trends reversing or even stabilizing? All fiat currencies have always failed and collapsed their economies on their way down. The Roman Empire, China, France, Argentina, Finland, Mexico, Russia, Zimbabwe, all tried fiat currency and all collapsed into chaos. Meanwhile, the dollar has lost over 97% of its gold value since 1971, when an ounce of gold was valued at $35. If your assets are in paper, you are in danger. Protect your assets with gold and silver. Visit Discount Gold and Silver Trading at DGSCoins.com. That's DGSCoins.com or call 1-800-375-4188. That's 800-375-4188. Protect yourself and your family.
And good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. I'm Melody Cedarstrom, and you're listening to Financial Survival. I'm here with my co-host, Alfred Adams, to bring you our opinion and commentary on today's economic and political events for Wednesday, March 25th, 2015. Wendy Wilson will be joining us this afternoon in just a few short minutes, right after the market report. It will be brief today. Good afternoon, Al. Hi, Melody. Um, we have a little bit of a drop in um, the markets today, so we had a you know, gold popped a little bit, but uh, not much, but uh, a little bit to the upside of uh, 220 at 1196, had a high uh, just slightly over 1200, couldn't keep it, uh, 1196, silver's up fractionally up a penny, 1706. Platinum was up seven at eleven forty seven along with palladium up four at seven hundred and sixty nine. USDX today was down point two four at ninety six ninety three. Crude oil was up one point four four at forty eight ninety five. And uh the paper market today, the Dow was down almost three hundred points. We we're talking about three, four, five hundred point drops yesterday. Uh, the Dow is down 292 at 17,718. The NASDAQ is down 118. That's a big drop for the NASDAQ. You're looking at uh, almost 2.5% at 4876. And the S&P was down 1.5%, down 30 at 2,061. 10-year yield popped back up, of course, 004 at 1.92%. The euro is trading at 1.10%. So we had a little bit of action in the markets today. There were some big mergers uh, in the news today. We can talk about that in a little bit. Germany was down uh, almost about one and a quarter percent, uh, down 140 points. So seeing that uh, downtrend started in Europe last night, followed through to the States. Uh, the Durable book Goods uh, report was out today. We'll talk about that after the break. So we, let's get right to Wendy Wilson today, Apothecary Herbs. Good afternoon, Wendy. Well, I guess Wendy's not here. Well, I'm here. Well, you're there. Uh, we can go ahead and until she uh, gets who we can it get on. It says we're having a little delay. All right. Well, let's go on until she gets says on. We're having a little delay, so I'm not sure what that means. Let's go on while we... Uh, wait for her to well, get see. on board. Sure. Let me okay. go ahead. Say, all right. You know, one thing before we even do that, you know, gold jumped a little over $2 today. A lot of people might not find that very impressive, but the truth of the matter is if gold went up $2 a day, that's $10 a week. That's over $500 a year. You know, $2 isn't a bad Increase, you know. Um, well, I would have liked to. Uh, I would have liked to seen it to close up over twelve. You know, it did hit twelve. Maybe we'll get there tomorrow, but uh, I, I feel much comfortable uh, with gold hitting uh, over twelve. So that's what I would have liked to have seen today. And I do. So what do you think will happen tomorrow? You no, know, durable good. Re- it, it depends on. Uh, well, we can talk about this after the break. I believe Wendy is on the phone, on the line right now. Good afternoon, Wendy. 
Good afternoon, Melody. Hello, Al. Hello, Wendy. What hey. you got for? Well, we're going to talk about industry, industry standards, how it affects our, our health everywhere. Because um, you've seen TV ads, I'm sure everybody has, for uh, prescription drugs, and then they, they, they talk about the side effects of the drug. And then um, sometimes the side effects are worse than what you would take the drug for, to be honest. And then if you don't change the channel, a lot of times there's a, an attorney ad right after that. And it's about that same drug saying, if you were harmed by this drug, contact our offices. You may be worth – you might have compensation, you know, do you. So um, I got me thinking about, you know, this whole process of how the pharmaceutical companies get drugs on the market. So if you go to the web – the website of the FDA, they have some general guidelines that they list there on the approval process for prescription medications. So the FDA states they're really not involved in any of the clinical trials, but that but they are involved in the evaluation process after all the data is submitted to them on the medications, and they have this panel that conducts this review, and on the panel, they have some experts. They have some physicians. They have statisticians, chemists, pharmacologists, and other scientific experts. So you would think that with a panel of experts like that, we would probably have very rare uh, death by drug on the market, wouldn't you think? Well, that would be the theory. That would be the theory, yeah. Well, I'm sorry to say I, I don't think the panel uh, either gets all the information that they should review on the medications or uh, something may be amiss, but um, the FDA does have a checklist when they do receive this information from the drug manufacturers, and um, it, it goes something like this. They, they ask, does the drug affect the body as it is stated in the document? An example would be if they're reviewing a blood pressure medication, does it actually lower blood pressure? Then they look and check to see if the drug dosage and frequency is, 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 you know, on par with the use of the drug. They look and they review the side effects that are listed, what the pharmaceutical company cops to, and uh, they, they check to see if any of those side effects can be, quote, managed, okay? You know, possibly and how do they manage them, by selling more drugs? Yeah, with another med. Uh, then they look and they look and see how the body breaks down these chemicals because these are toxic drugs. So they look to see how the body handles the toxicity and if there's any accumulation effect of the toxicity. And then they check the drug's interactions with food, beverages, and other medications to try to identify what you should avoid. And lastly, they look at the overall rating of the drug's effectiveness for the market approval process. So they look to see if it's, you know, going to benefit, if it's going to make some money, you know, so forth and so on. So there's this two-tiered process, Al, Melody, at the FDA when it comes to their uh, drug approval process. Under the Prescription Drug User Free Act of 1992, they have a tier, a standard tier of approval process, and then they have a priority review process. So the drug that offers minor improvement tends to fall under the standard review process, and that could take about 10 months. Drugs that appear to offer major advances in treatments or is a new treatment will fall under the priority review, and that takes about six months. They also have a fast-track accelerated approval option for the approval of breakthrough therapies or 
if a new drug has advantages over existing treatments. So advantages would be is their superior effectiveness of the drug, there's no serious side effects of the drug, statistically better uh, patient outcomes while they're using the drug, also reduced treatment toxicity and anticipation of public health need, otherwise known as pandemic, kind of fast-track those vaccines, you know what I mean? Yeah, well, you'll have our vaccine for the swine flu. It should be ready by the following uh, spring. After we have the outbreak, they'll have the vaccine up. Well, the, acceler- months later. well the accelerated process takes 60 days, roughly. Okay. So, um, but the FDA, you know, you have to ask yourself, okay, so they go through all this for prescription drugs. What about over-the-counter and grandfathered medications? What do you suppose happens with those? Well, the FDA... Depends on how much money they can make. Well, no, they they can't handle it because there's over 300,000 over-the-counter products. They can't possibly review them all, okay? The agency can't do it. Too many, they say. So, therefore, the agency lumps them into categories that pertain to their active ingredients. For example, if a product has an analgesic or an antacid effect, they'll place that into the therapeutic category where there's 80 different classes of drugs. So for each class of drugs, there's a recipe book. Did you know this? There's a recipe book. The, the, the FDA calls it a monograph, okay? Which, do, they, do they make FDA brownies using these drugs? <laughs> you got to end, Al. Okay, let's not go there. Anyway, moving along. The recipe book, also known as the monograph, lists the drug's approval approval ingredients for that particular over-the-counter medicine. So it lists the ingredients, the dose, the formulation, and, of course, all the labeling restrictions. So all that a manufacturer has to do is follow the recipe, and they can market this over-the-counter product without FDA preapproval. That's right. So the FDA concludes that the monographs, the recipes, are safe and effective. So if you're following that recipe, you're fine. So your allergies... These these monographs and Uh these... These products have not actually been tested. The FDA is apparently, if I'm understanding you correctly, they are concluding, well, if you use this plus this plus this, everything should be fine. But right. they haven't actually tested it. Well, okay. and they don't, they don't require any clinical testing to review that. But they, you know, they're just assuming, okay, um, history has proven, I guess, grandfathered, if you will, these ingredients, and you're cool if you want to use those. So your allergy drugs, your pain relievers, your digestive and sleep aids, and any of the over-the-counter products are not closely monitored, and they would be only examined by the FDA if there was a problem in the market. Okay, so they don't they don't examine them prior to entering the market. Okay. Yep. Okay. So um, according to the World Health Organization, 25% of the pharmaceutical drugs in the United States are made from plants. I think it's more like 2%. Everything's synthetic now. So they make synthetic copycats of these plant chemicals because it lowers their manufacturing costs. About 80% of the population of Africa and Asia, they choose to use medicinal herbs because they can't afford pharmaceuticals, for one thing, and they don't like the side effects. So you have some empirical history here that, you know, plants are the original medicine, not the alternative, okay? Yeah. Allopathic is the alternative. But, but I did notice something. I did notice something. Uh, the FDA has a list uh, of, on their – they have MedWatch forms, 
and they're forms 3500 and 3500A. And these, these offer statistics on death by scientific medicine, basically your, your prescription drugs. So in the United States, these statistics are posted based on these MedWatch forms, and these are incidences caused by taking a prescription medicine that has produced a serious outcome, which is either life-threatening, which causes hospitalization, causes disability, or even death. And here's what I found. It spanned a 10-year um, period, okay, so from 2000 to 2010. I'll give you the 2000 numbers, and then I'll skip to the 2010. In 2000, there were almost 20,000 deaths and 153,000 uh, injuries due to prescription meds that were taken the way they were prescribed. Now we jump to 2010, the death rate jumped to 270,000. That's a 66.7% increase, and the serious injuries went to over a million, so it was 77.5% being injured by a prescription drug. What do you think of that? I'm, I, it's, that's, pretty, that's pretty surprising, for sure. Mm -hmm. How is it, what is the reason that, for that dramatic increase? Well, according to the reports, uh, they were published actually also in the 2006 issue of Pharmacotherapy, uh, that the mortality risk rate is jumping 20%, and, and when someone experiences an adverse reaction to the drug, it's usually when they're hospitalized. Okay, so they said your, your, your risk actually increases 20% if you take the drug and you're in the hospital at the time that <laughs> you take it. So apparently they pump you full of other drugs to, counter, to counteract your, your reaction, and it's probably not a very good outcome there. Uh, it may be that you're already taking some other drugs at the mm -hmm. hospital, and there's some sort of a reaction yeah. between the new drug and the drugs you're already taking. Hard to say. Um, well, that's certainly strange. It's probably intolerable. It's inexcusable. Mm -hmm. Who well, is, is anyone uh, in Congress or whatever doing anything about this? Well, actually, the lawyers are on top of this, to be honest. In the 2010 Connecticut Law Review, they stated that injuries and deaths that are caused by these drugs seem to be growing. So lawyers are overseeing billion-dollar lawsuits on some of the most well-known drugs for arthritis, and hearts and strokes, heart attacks, Fen-Fen, the diet drug, caused heart damage. Uh, Prolipsid is a gastric, uh, it, it causes gastric problems. So if the drug companies, if they're paying out settlement, settlements, that's when they start to yank them off the market. Yeah. So, so I, 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 just think, I just think people need to check and do their homework. Now, pain medications are a big risk, and according to the Federal Register in 2009, there was considered this organ-specific warnings on the acinaminophen drugs, your, your anti-inflammatory pain relievers. They documented that these drugs caused liver damage. There were 56,000 people who ended up in the ER from 1993 to 1999. That's like 10,000 people a year from taking these meds. And there was almost 500 deaths from taking it. Your non-steroidal anti-inflammatory meds aren't any better, according to the September issue of the 1997 Annals of Internal Medicine. These drugs caused over 7,000 deaths and 76,000 hospitalizations in the U.S. So doctors, this is why doctors, they don't touch the pain meds 
anti-steroidal, anti-inflammatories. They don't use them, and they don't use antidepressants or sleep aids because of the risks. They know that. And when you say they don't touch them, I think they don't, use them. They don't prescribe them. Well, That's they don't the use thoughts. them. No, they prescribe them for patients, but they don't use them personally. Oh, all right. All right. Okay, they use something else. <laughs> yeah, do as I say, not as I do. Huh? Yeah. This is doctor. We've, what have we got? We've got about 45 seconds left. Quick okay. question. Yeah. What do you think about reports that the FDA may be corrupt insofar as at least some elements of the FDA take bribes to approve drugs that might not be approved under normal circumstances? True or false? Oh, I, I think there's corruption. I really do. I really do. Based not only on my own suspicions and what I'm reading here from the statistics, I mean, you know, this, you know, the proof is in the fruits here. Uh, you, you also have to take into consideration what doctors are saying. A lot of doctors have stepped out of the box and paid a heavy price. Saying you know that you know the FDA aren't they're full it's full of not nice people and they, yeah. they actually work for the pharmaceutical companies it's a it's yep. a big medical cartel so yeah so I tell people you know look at your empirical history on your herbs they don't have side effects I don't see any death certificates death by herb out there so uh, check out your herbs as, as an option there if you want to that, that was an opportunity for me to do another brownie joke but we're gonna have to let that go okay give folks, yeah. give, some, give folks some contact information Wendy sure and, uh, they can uh, call for a free product catalog the number is 866-229-3663 866-229-3663 or visit thepowerherbs.com thank you so much Thank you, Wendy. That's Wendy Wilson from thepowerherbs.com at 866-229-3663. Give her a call. We're going to take a break for some commercial announcements, and Melody and I will be right back. Please stay tuned. Pandemics will be a part of our future. The question is, how do we protect ourselves? Are you willing to put your trust in an untested vaccine hoping it kills mutating viruses? Remember, in 1976, health officials tried to inoculate Americans with swine flu, and there was a 300% death rate in those inoculated, and millions were paid out in damages. God gave you a sophisticated immune system, and in times of need, you can make it 10 times stronger. So there's no need to panic. Just get prepared. Call Apothecary Herbs to order your upgraded pandemic kit. You will have eight professional strength formulas offering broad-spectrum immune-boosting protection. Take a stand, have a plan, have peace, and request your pandemic kit today. Or take your chances with the bad boys. Call Apothecary Herbs toll-free, 866-229-3663, or online, thepowerherbs.com. Food prices have increased over 40%. Energy prices have increased over 20%. Wheat and gas prices have increased over 70%. What's going to be next? 
Do you see these trends reversing or even stabilizing? All fiat currencies have always failed and collapsed their economies on their way down. The Roman Empire, China, France, Argentina, Finland, Mexico, Russia, Zimbabwe all tried fiat currency and all collapsed into chaos. Meanwhile, the dollar has lost over 97% of its gold value since 1971, when an ounce of gold was valued at $35. If your assets are in paper, you are in danger. Protect your assets with gold and silver. Visit Discount Gold and Silver Trading at DGSCoins.com. That's DGSCoins.com or call 1-800-375-4188. That's 800-375-4188. Protect yourself and your family. Are you concerned about prescription drug dependency to stay healthy? Are you worried that the cost and availability of your medications may put your health at risk? Perhaps it's time you consider a natural, safe, and effective way to deal with your health problems. If only you knew where to start. Start right here. Tune in to Herb Talk Live with herbalist Wendy Wilson every Tuesday and Thursday evening, 7 p.m. on AmericanVoiceRadio.com, where your health care options just became endless. On Financial Survival Programs brought to you by Discount Gold and Silver. All your gold and silver coin needs. What's next, Melody? Well, I ran a little special this morning. I was on Beth Ann's program, the Common Sense Coalition, and I ran a little special. And I'll continue that through today's program with Discount Gold and Silver Financial Survival Program. And that was one one-tenth ounce gold eagle coin, 20 one-ounce silver eagles, include shipping, for $545. I mean, you could get you could get four of those packages and it brings you a little over 2015, but uh, you can buy one or 100 of these packages for $545. Uh, the price on the Silver Eagles, I mean, significant savings. It's it's as though you're buying a box of 500. They're really at a discounted rate along with a one tenth ounce gold eagle coin. Give us a call at 1-800-375-4188. 1-800-375-4188. And it's brought to my attention. Uh, I've had several people uh, call me and talk to me about uh, what HSBC was doing. There was, uh, you know, reports that they were going to close their gold bullion storage. Their vaults where the gold for the uh, GLD ETF was stored. Um, that rumor was circulating around the Internet, and it was true. I mean, it was, I don't know, four or five years ago, the HSBC did close down their um, gold storage uh, for IRAs. I mean, that did happen, uh, I don't know, four or five years ago because we had to transfer a lot of that, uh, the IRA holders' gold out of there and place it somewhere else. And uh, so that did happen. Uh, but this was an incorrect uh, report um, about the uh, closing their gold vaults. They are closing down their safety deposit box facilities in vaults in branches. 
uh, banks internationally, closing boxes as not profitable, and uh, they seem to be moving to a cashless society was part of the rumor, and that was incorrect speculation that the, the HSBC moved forcing gold clients to sell bullion. Um, these are just the highlights of the uh, article as far as uh, uh, that they were rapidly and quietly closing gold vaults and people had to sell their gold. So uh, incorrect rumor floating around. So folks, you know, be careful when you, you know, come across this information. Um, we always try to verify it. And um, so, boom. Yes, it is, Sam. It's a strange little report in this regard. Insofar as they justify their closing their safety deposit boxes because they're not profitable, that's like saying I own a dozen rental homes and I've decided to tear them all to the ground because the rent is, is still at the same price that it was 20 years ago. What's to stop me from simply raising the rent on the houses? The fees on the safety deposit boxes. It does seem like they have an ulterior motive. I mean, to me, if if people were going to say nobody's using the safety deposit boxes anymore, all right, then it doesn't matter if you charge $500 a day for them or you charge $500 a decade, you're not going to get this payment if nobody's using safety deposit boxes. But how much trouble can it be to raise the price of renting a safety deposit box and to make them profitable? What are they going to do, rip those out of the banks now? And they're not going to have safety deposit boxes anymore, not just not sell them, but rip them out? You know, it, it's it's a strange little story because it makes you wonder why are they canceling safety deposit boxes? Well, I mean, just like anything else with a lot of these uh, banks, I mean, you know, they're closing a lot of branches. They're closing a lot of services, you know, because people go online. And, yes, safety deposit boxes are a little different. But, you know, they're, they're closing down services to um, people. Um, you know, to clients, uh, you know, it, it, it's it's more of a bother. I mean, how much money can you make off a of safety deposit? It's just more of a bother. Uh, probably the rent uh, in New York and so forth. I mean, it's fair, probably fairly significant. And um, so they just don't want to be bothered anymore. That's the way I would look at it. But. Well, I don't know how to look at it for sure, but it certainly it just strikes me as strange. Uh, you know, all right, fine. If you used to be able to make money $5 a month, all right, now you can't. All right, fine, raise it to 10. Why shut them down? Raise it to 20, raise it to 50, raise it to whatever. And in theory, if the market will bear your additional price, now you're still making, you know, it's it's like a lot of businesses. You have lost leaders. People advertise, you've got this for sale, and it's a heck of a deal. And, uh, you know, you, you can you can take advantage of that deal, but it's there to bring people in the door. If you have safety deposit boxes, people say, oh, yeah, I want, to do, I want to do business with that bank because they have safety deposit boxes, and I really want one. You know, maybe I want two or three. Um, it's just odd, a bank that doesn't provide safety deposit boxes. It strikes me as a little bit strange, and, they, and I look at it, and I'm thinking to myself, what are these people really up to here? Uh, I do that because just I have a suspicious mind, perhaps. Well, I think mine is probably more suspicious than anyone's, but 
you know, I mean, I mean, we're talking about an international bank, you know, yeah, I, the whole point, and, and you're right, there could be other, you know, it could be another, you know, something behind the scenes going on, but the whole point is it was a rumor about the... I get that. Yeah, that was, so. that was the main just... The rumors, they were closing the vaults. They're yeah. not closing the vaults, but they the are vault. closing the safety the deposit boxes. Box. Um, you know, it is still one other thing. It is one of the biggest banks in the world. You would think that HSBC is doing business with a lot of globalists, a lot of international people who are generating their money on an international basis. These are the kinds of people who would want, you would think they want, a safety deposit box to store their jewels, their stock, whatever it is. Uh, you would think they have wealthy people that want this service, and yet they're saying, no, we're getting rid of that. So it's, it's something I'll keep an eye out for. We'll see if we hear more about that in the future. Maybe we can get a better idea of what's going on there. But it is a strange it, story. If I was a person that had extreme wealth, the last place I'd want to store it in a safety deposit box is New York City. So, anyway, <laughs> that would be the last place I'd want to have it. But, anyway. Um, There's an article from George Soros. Well, Bloomberg, actually, but George, the headline is George Soros warns Greece is going down the drain. Right now we're at the cusp. Billionaire George Soros tells Bloomberg TV in his uh, uh, in a recent interview, and the chances of Greece leaving the euro area are now 50-50, and the country could go down the drain. It's now a lose-lose game, and the best that can happen is actually muddling through. Greece is a long-festering problem that was mishandled from the beginning by all parties. Prime Minister Alexis Tsipras' uh, government needs to persuade its creditors to sign off on a package of economic measures to free up long-withheld aid payments that will keep the country afloat. And if they don't do, there are alleged, there are reports out that Tsipras and German Chancellor Merkel have recently reached an agreement where Greece has promised certain reforms. If Germany will okay just giving give us more money and we promise to change our ways. How many believe that? You know, this is a little bit like lending more money to someone you know is a crack addict. Huh? And the crack addict oh no, no, I, I promise. I'm not I'm not gonna do anything. You you lend me another couple billion or however hundred billion or whatever lend me a little more money and I promise, scouts honor no more crack for me. I'm I'm not I'm serious. I'm I'm quitting right now. How many people are you gonna believe that? I mean, whatever's going on here, everyone understands that Greece can't pay the existing debt. And they talked about it. They the term they used just a couple of months ago was extend and pretend. They extend the loans by pretending that Greece will be able to repay the loans. And it's important to do that. Why? Everybody knows Greece is not going to repay most of that debt. Some of it, yeah. Most of it, no. Why do they extend and pretend and pretend that it can be paid? And the reason is that as long as we pretend that the Greek bonds are still worth money, face value, then the creditors that are holding those bonds 
and keep them on the books and say, yes, we still have assets. Huh? We have X hundred billion dollars in assets, and they're signed off on by the government of Greece. We can pretend these are still valuable. But it's a little bit like Confederate money, holding Confederate money after the, after the uh, Civil War. A lot of people held it, but the truth of the matter was, except as a collector's item, you know, the Confederate dollar, they may have held these things because the South will rise again, but it didn't. And they may be holding Greek bonds in anticipation that Greece will rise again, but it's not going to happen in the foreseeable future. And But in order to preserve the illusion that those pieces of paper are still valuable, we're going to pretend that Greece could pay these things off, and we'll pay them off. And the whole thing is nonsense. And it probably goes, it quite possibly goes to the idea of fractional reserve banking. And it's my understanding that in Europe, fractional reserve banking is considerably the fraction that must be maintained in the vaults in order to justify lending money. It is, is much less than it is here in the United States. It might be 30 to 1. I don't know if that's true or false. But it means that for every million dollars you've got in the vault, you can, in theory, lend $30 million. Well, Greece's bonds are in somebody's vaults, or some, some people's vaults, and they are quite probably being used as collateral to justify loans. And if the Greece and Greece has $100 billion in bonds that they've given to the different creditors, the creditors, in theory, might have loaned Thirty billion. What did I just say? A hundred billion. All right. So it's maybe three trillion dollars in theory. I don't. But they can multiply three thirty times that much to lend out to people. When, if Greece admits that, and the Europeans admit, hey, we're never going to. These are these pieces. They're nothing but paper. We're never going to get paid on this. Then, in theory, they may have to pull in the loans that were generated based on the Greek bonds. And that can be multiples, right? This is domino theory. This is if the one domino falls, 30 more dominoes are going to fall right behind it. And that's why they have to maintain the illusion that the first domino, the Greek bonds, got to maintain the illusion that these things are still valid. And at least that's my suspicion. So we're going to see the Greeks are going to hit the they're going to hit the fan. This issue will hit the fan next month, if I understand correctly. April 20th. Hmm. April 20th. They run out of cash. All right. So what have we got? A little less than a month. Uh, four weeks, maybe. Three, four weeks, they run out of cash. Now, what do you think is going to happen, Melody? Will the European creditors give Greece more money in order to, in order to extend and pretend that their bonds have value? Or will they finally just say, that's it, we can't go any further? Of course not. What do you mean, of course well, not? Well, they're, they're going to have to. No, they will. Yeah, I think they probably will, too. They will. Yeah. I mean, you know what? You know what I'd like to say to Greece? Default again. Move on. Just yeah, I know. Move on. But they can't. I'm so worn out they with it. They got that domino effect going on with the fractional reserve. It's going to happen anyway. I know it's, it's going to happen anyway. That's yeah. true, but nobody wants it to happen now. 
everyone said, well, who knows? Maybe we'll and get I lucky. If we just extend this a little bit further, another six months, another 90 days, whatever, we extend this, maybe a year, we could extend it for another year. Maybe we'll get lucky and something will break in our favor. I think Cypress will, will probably play along with their deal, too. If he is the real deal and he's just going along with all these uh, arrangements and agreements uh, until he positions himself, I mean, we see his relationship grow with Russia. Um, I mean, you know, if, if, and if he can change and course uh, with some sort of an agreement with Russia, you know, then you can start to see things fall apart. So that, to me, I think is the key. If he has an alternative to the European Union, I think he'll take it. But, uh, you know, we'll see. He'll take any alternative. I mean, it's a drowning man grasping at straws. That's the analogy here. If they get their money from the Congo, it doesn't matter to them. Just give us the money so we can keep functioning. No, I think it does matter. Well, yeah, it doesn't I matter. I mean, you know, they're not going to take money, money from the Congo, but, matters. you know, they're built. Russia's a little bit different than the Congo, and I, I think, uh, you know, because you've got that military force and everything else that comes with Russia. So, you know, there is, and the relationships between Russia and, and Europe and the U.S., it's a whole different ball game. But, you know. I get that, but the Greeks will take whatever money they can get and make whatever promises they have to make. And yeah, you've got to remember their background. I mean, they're all the Greeks. But you can't blame the Greeks. Everybody knows they're not going to pay off the existing debt. Every creditor in the world right now who might be able to lend Greece a reasonable amount of money to try to tide them over for at least a little while longer knows that odds are they're not going to be repaid however much they loan they loan to Greece. They're not going to get repaid. So these people become fools. They are enablers. Again, they use that the the example of someone a crack addict. It's like being the guy who sells crack or provides crack to the addict. You become an enabler. That's all you're going to do. You're going to have more money. They're going to waste it. They're not going to repay it. What are we doing here? I, you know, there is a point in time where you can't just blame Greece because and say, well, Greece has been irresponsible. Greece isn't going to pay its debts. You got to blame the people. Look, you loan these people more money they could ever than they could ever hope to repay. But aren't we beyond? Do it. Got to be dumb to be. And it's not just a question of being dumb. There's a question of there's a point in time when your stupidity goes beyond just saying, oh, gee, I made a mistake, and it moves into the realm of malice. How stupid do you have to be? What are you doing here, this nation? They're going to have a very big problem in Greece before this is done. And it's been brought on, not just by irresponsible Greek government, that's part of it, not just by irresponsible Greek people, that's part of it, but also by irresponsible predators. They said, oh, yeah, let's, let's let more money to the crack addict. You know, it'll be, we'll, we'll, we'll get the money, we'll make it. How different is that from the U.S.? Well, I know. It's just an example of what's going on here, and it's an illustration. You get to a point where the debt is too big to be repaid, and then what happens? You begin to think face Like, we're forced to face the reality of more commercial announcements. So we're going to do that. We're going to face 
Right now, I don't even need a blindfold. I'm going to listen to the commercials. And hope you do, too. And Melody and I will be back in a moment. Please stay tuned. obligations or relationship problems have you feeling stressed out when life is too much to handle use apothecary herbs emotional stress formula feel calm and more in control with herbs especially combined to provide the organic nutrition your system needs to help you cope complete instructions for maximum benefit and a money-back guarantee you've waited long enough call apothecary herbs now toll free 866-229-3663 that's eight 866-229-3663. International callers dial 704-875-8010 or order online at the 3w.thepowerherbs.com. Since the beginning of the United States, kings have sought it, nations have fought for it. It has been traded borrowed, purchased, and stolen. There is a reason for it. To secure the blessings of liberty to ourselves and our posterity, invest with the security of gold and silver. Call Discount Gold and Silver Trading at 1-800-375-4188. That's 1-800-375-4188. Listen to Financial Survival with your host, Melody Cedarstrom, on American Voice Radio Network and Shortwave Radio. Visit DiscountGoldAndSilverTrading.net or call 1-800-375-4188. That's 1-800-375-4188. For the very best in gold and silver trading, call toll-free 1-800-375-4188. That's 1-800-375-4188. Call now. I'm Alfred Adams here with Melody Cedarstrom on Financial Survival, talking about Greece and whether or not they're going to default on their loans. And one question we need to consider, one of the alternatives is that Greece, if they can't get support out of the European Union to carry them and their extend and pretend program a while longer, they may try to get some support out of Russia. Right? Could be. But one of the things we have to ask ourselves does Russia really want to take any responsibility for Greece at this time? Because Russia has enough problems with its own economic, enough economic problems based on sanctions that have been imposed by the United States government and so on. Are they really in a condition of, well, let's take, let's take, let's take care of Greece. It'll only cost us, I don't know, a few hundred billion dollars a year. That's all we can afford that. There's a political game. Russia would establish a territorial presence within what was formerly the, uh, the, the European Union. There's something to be gained here, there's, there's, but I'm sure there are people in Russia that are saying, I don't know, do we really want to take on that burden? 
because you know it's just you're just going to give money to Greece, and Greece is not going to pay it back. Will Russia get enough? You know, it depends. It's one of those things. How much do they have to give them? They give them fifty million dollars. Yeah, Russia couldn't afford it. Give them five hundred billion, maybe not. And when does Greece finally hit a point that it is again self-supporting? Is able to make good on at least its new bonds. When is that going to happen? And how long are they going to carry these old bonds? Another year, five years, twenty years, a hundred years? How long? Sooner or later, just like Melody said, they've got to default on the existing debt because they can't pay it. That's all. We have to face reality sooner or later, but European creditors don't want to face reality at this time. So. I don't know. Do you think Russia's going to move in, or they're not going to move in, or they're going to have second thoughts? I think it just depends on the impact it would have on the other European countries. If the sanctions continue and so forth, you know, they might think of this as a way to to strike back uh, somehow, some way. But uh, who's most vulnerable in this situation, Greece or the European Union? I would think the European Union. You think they're more vulnerable than Greece? In other words, if they default, officially default on on the Greek bonds and whatever, the real damage won't be to Greece. It'll be to the European Union. True? Well, I mean, it'll affect all of them. You know, it's hard to say who would be hurt yeah, the most. Yeah, that's, that's – and the point is anyone – ask, ask the people of Greece, and they'll probably say, you know, they would be hurt the most, but um, – is there anyone who's not going to be hurt that's involved in in Europe, for example? Anyone over there will Greece going to skate? European Union going to skate? Anyone who? And my point is this: no matter how you do this, there's going to be a lot of pain and aggravation for a considerable number of people, not just in Greece but also in the European Union. And you know, Al, something that just crossed my mind. You know, we saw the the euro crash. The dollar gets strong. Maybe they allowed the euro to crash uh, in, in anticipation of the Greeks defaulting. Maybe that was the whole scenario to begin with. Because I mean, it was all kind of coincided with the, you know the the last episode of Greece, you know, to where you had that euro crash. I don't know. That's not something. That's beyond my my pay grade to speculate on well, that. Well, a lower currency creates inflation. They need well, I know. They want inflation. They wanted it. They stimulate, yep. and, and, and to some degree they're having success with that. I've seen reports the European economy point. is jumping, and it may be that their what does that do to them? have what, actually succeeded. And what does that do to their debt? Well, they, it, the euro becomes less valuable. Right. All right, and it allows people to pay off their debts with cheaper euros. I get that. So maybe but that was the. Is it enough to make a difference for Greece? Perhaps. I don't think it's enough to make a I make well, a significant difference. Some difference, yeah. Significant difference, probably not. But maybe opinion. it was enough. Here's here's the lesson on this. The lesson is something I've harped on for several years. One man's debt is another man's asset in this fiat currency monetary system. If I borrow a billion dollars, I've got I I I have the advantage of using that money for a while, but someone else I owe a billion dollars 
but someone else is holding a piece of paper with my signature on it says Al promises to repay $1 billion. They're treating it as an asset. If I default on the debt bill, oh, you'd never guess what. I, I spent all that money, it's gone, and I'll never be able to pay back the bill. Guess what? The asset disappears. The debt is defaulted on, but the asset also disappears, and that's the danger in this debt-based monetary system. When it finally breaks down and says, gee, we can't pay the debt, it means that the correlative assets also have to be vaporized. They are rendered invalid. You know, they, they are no longer worth a nickel. Uh, and that's what we're seeing here. If Greece just defaulted on its loans once upon a time, if we had a real monetary system and it was, and the loan was uh, secured by gold, bars of gold, right? and the Greeks said, gee, we can't pay. Well, okay, then somebody else gets the gold. But the gold is still there. The gold doesn't disappear when the debt, when we default on the debt. It may no longer be owned by Greece, but somebody's got the gold and the economy, the general economy, is not damaged because the, because the capital has disappeared and vaporized. But that's not true with our brave new fiat currency world. When somebody defaults on the debt, it also wipes out the correlative assets, and with fractional reserve banking, maybe even more than the correlative uh, financial assets, which means, oh, we've got a terrible, terrible problem here. If Greece defaults, somebody's going to lose assets big time, and maybe more than that, you know, Domino effect. So, this is the kind of conundrum that we went, may wind up facing here in this country. We too have debt far beyond our ability to repay, and sooner or later, we are going to find ourselves in circumstances similar to that of Greece. Insofar as somebody's going to have to come up and step up and tell the truth, say, "Guess what? We can't pay." How about that? We, we spent it all, and uh, or at least most of it, and we're not going to be able to repay the existing debt. And what happens when we hit that moment? Will the world extend and pretend and keep lending us more money? In a sense, we've already hit that moment insofar as the Federal Reserve is the last entity, or at least it has been, that was willing to lend substantial funds to the United States government.
Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.